Hi, listeners. Rob here. Welcome back to our holiday season classic episode series. This year's third classic episode is an episode that the producer of the show, Kieran Harris, did with noted author and self-experimenter AJ Jacobs back in 2020. They have a fun conversation about all sorts of crazy stuff AJ has done in pursuit of writing his books, which include Radical Honesty, Drop Dead Healthy, The Know-It-All, The Year of Living Biblically, and Thanks a Thousand. They also discuss the new book that AJ was working on at the time, which has now come out and is titled The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, from Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. One person on our advisory group commented about this episode. This was really entertaining with plenty of good takeaways. I actually think it's good to have people beyond experts from 80,000 hours priority problem areas, as those problem areas are being covered pretty well already. While another said, I really, really enjoyed this episode. I don't think it was especially useful for helping me do more good, but it was really fun and relaxing to listen to, and I'm very glad it exists. I liked the fact that it covered a wide range of AJ's experiments, so there wasn't time for any particular topic to get stale, and that AJ and Kieran had so many relevant personal examples to share. All right, without further ado, I bring you Kieran Harris and AJ Jacobs. Today, I'm speaking with AJ Jacobs. AJ is the author of New York Times bestsellers, The Know-It-All, The Year of Living Biblically, and My Life as an Experiment. His most recent book is Thanks a Thousand, A Gratitude Journey. He's the editor-at-large of Esquire magazine, where he wrote a piece on effective altruism called The Maximum Good, One Man's Quest to Master the Art of Donating. He's a contributor to NPR and has written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Entertainment Weekly. He's also attended and spoken at three Effective Altruism Global Conferences and is a member of Giving What We Can, pledging 10% of his lifelong earnings charity. He lives in New York City with his wife and kids and is, for my money, one of the most delightful people on the planet. Thanks for coming on the podcast, AJ. Wow. That, I, right back at you. I find you delightful and I'm a big fan of the podcast and of 80,000 Hours and of your writing, so very excited to be here. I hope to talk about your experiences experimenting on yourself and your thoughts on effective altruism and long-termism and your advice for talented writers in the audience. But first, what are you doing at the moment and what drew you to the project? I'm doing a couple of things. One that I'm excited about is a podcast that I'm doing with a friend of mine, and it's called Good or Bad. And it's actually about ethical philosophy, and we're trying to make it entertaining in who knows if that's going to be possible. But the idea is we take a big topic every episode and we've done democracy, the dogs. Olympics, yeah, dogs. And then we try to discuss, figure out how it's good for the world and how it's not good for the world from a utilitarian perspective, mostly. So uh, like dogs, they bring joy to billions of people. They're soft and furry and delightful. On the other hand, most of them are carnivores. So when you adopt a dog, you're condemning hundreds of other animals to be eaten. So how do you weigh those on a scale? And, and what bad? was the conclusion for dogs? I noticed, and AJ has been gracious enough to let me record this interview in his New York City apartment, but I noticed that you have a dog. So I'm guessing that you came down on the side of <laughs> dogs are good? <laughs> well, my dog is good. Yeah, I don't know. It, it was a hard one. I'd say at the end, we try to come up with a suggestion on how to make whatever it is, better. And my thought was that we should encourage people to adopt more rabbits because Ooh. rabbits are also soft and cuddly, but they're, they're herbivores. So, uh, yeah, maybe 
God forbid, whenever we need a new pet, maybe we'll go with a rabbit. But yeah, I'm a hypocrite because I love my dog. That seems beyond reasonable. Uh, were there any other interesting episodes? The first episode, which I'm excited about, is a it's a meta episode about whether this podcast is good or bad for the world. Because to, for, do we really need another podcast sure. in the world? But on the other hand, the idea is to try to promote the idea of nuance and that everything has its its grays and its trade-offs and that we need more of that thinking in this polarized world. On the other hand... There's the problem of both sidism, because we don't want to, you know, in some issues like evolution versus creationism, right. you know, don't put them on equal footing and say they're good and bad to those, you know, and in that case, there really is a clear cut. And do you want to go on the record of saying, which is the clear cut answer? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking. I am a believer in evolution. I am a Darwinist. And I do have a whole section in one of my books about creationism and the and the allure of creationism. So I do see I do see the good of it, but it's very small, very small. All right. So um, I know you're also working on a new book, and I would love to hear about that. Yeah, I'm working on a book about puzzles. Oddly enough, I'm a big fan of puzzles in general. Crossword mostly is my passion, but this is going to be about all types of puzzles. So. Jigsaw, mazes, logic puzzles, and I'm I'm sort of trying to compete in all sorts of puzzle competitions. Oh, wow. My family and I, a couple months ago, went to Spain to represent the United States in the International Jigsaw Puzzle Competition, and we placed second to last. Second to last. <laughs> I like to pause just to give people. But yeah, we were terrible. Uh, but you, can, it was, you competed as a family. Yes, there's teams of four, and you're given eight hours to solve four large puzzles. And the you know we were we were terrible. We finished about a puzzle and a half. The Russians were astounding. They finished all four in about three hours. You know, possible doping was involved. Sure. Uh, yeah. I have my suspicions, but it was remarkable to see just the level of virtuosity and whatever the uh, topic, there's going to be someone who has just spent so much time being an expert. So it was a blast. And one of the bigger points of the book, because I always try to inject a little effective altruism thinking into my project. So the way I'm crowbarring it into this one is the idea that if we all think more like puzzlers, would the world be a better place? And there was, uh, I think it's Scott Alexander who wrote about the conflict theory versus mistake theory mm -hmm. and the idea that some people see the world as a war of ideas. So Marxism being an example. And some people see it more as like an engineering problem, you know, like, like is world hunger an engineering problem that we can solve almost technocratically. And I think reality has elements of both, but I do think that we, especially in the political atmosphere now, we focus too much on the, the conflict theory. So the idea is, can we solve many of these big problems? Like if we see the environment, environmental crisis as a puzzle, hmm. it's A, it's more motivating because it's like, you know, puzzles have a solution. Sure. B, you know, you're, you cooperate instead of fight over the solution. And yeah, so is there, is this a better way? 
AI, you know, any of the big topics that we talk about in EA, yeah. if we see them as a puzzle. So do you, do you have a sense of whether this would be more motivating if people thought, I mean, I suppose some people would feel a bit pessimistic about some of the topics we talk about, thinking like, well, what can you actually really do to influence the long run future? But if they thought of it as a puzzle, do you think that they would have a sense that maybe they can win? Well, that's it. I think it is more motivating to call it a puzzle because mm. then... You know, you're reframing it as something, you know, that's not hopeless and might even be an interesting challenge to, I don't want to call stopping nuclear war fun, but at least I find it personally, anecdotally, much more motivating. So I don't know the research on it. It would be interesting to see. I don't know if anyone has done any research on it. But yeah, I think it's a better way to frame the world. Yeah. Are there any specific techniques that puzzles use that you would see in this thought process? So if we were currently, if someone who wasn't thinking of climate change as a puzzle sat down and tried to solve this problem, how would that differ to someone who was thinking of this purely as, this is just a puzzle, I'm representing my country in the international puzzle competition, climate change happens to be the puzzle I'm working on. Right. Are there any steps that they would go through that maybe normal people wouldn't? That's a good question. Let me think about it. And uh, so... You can cut it out and I'll seem smarter. Uh, (laughs) But uh, I mean, I think when you're solving a puzzle, breaking it down into smaller parts Mm. is just one of the most important steps. And even getting a foothold is important. So the Saturday New York Times crossword puzzle is the hardest puzzle of the week. And often I'll just stare at the grid and I will be baffled. But eventually I'll find one little foothold and one clue that I can answer. And building out from that clue, I can eventually solve the whole thing. So it's sort of this, A, it gives me optimism that I can solve something incredibly hard, Mm -hmm. and B, this idea that you just need one entry point. You just need to gain purchase on one aspect of the problem and then build out from there. I love that. All right, good. I came up with something. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you first come up with the plan of doing immersive experiments and writing books about the experience? Well, I think, you know, partly by accident, partly that the advice I got from all writing teachers is write what you know, write what you experience. Mm -hmm. And I did not really experience anything interesting. You know, my life was not particularly remarkable. Like, you know, um, Frank McCourt, who had an amazing childhood, uh, you know, my childhood was not not that interesting. So I thought, well, maybe I could do something interesting, do a a little experiment and then write about it. And that might be a better way to go about. And, you know, of course, this is not an original idea. There's a writer named George Plimpton, who was active in the 60s, 70s, who he mostly focused on sports. Mm -hmm. So he would he played for a professional baseball team for a week. He played for a football team. He got hit by a heavyweight boxer in the face. I am not very athletic, nor do I relish getting punched in the face by a heavyweight champion. So I thought, what if it was more social? Because I am okay with awkward social situations and inflicting pain and suffering on myself that way. And so that sort of was the origin. And I've been very lucky that I've been able to make a living out of it because I do think it is a very interesting and fun way to spend my days. Not always, not always fun, I should say. Not you know sometimes quite painful. Mm-hmm. But, We're definitely going to get into that. Yeah, <laughs> but overall fun as a good in the good or bad scheme. Overall good. 
Okay, so I did want to talk about a bunch of your experiments specifically. Yeah. I thought maybe we'd start with a collection of essays that you wrote in 2010, which was called My Life as an Experiment, One Man's Humble Quest to Improve Himself. And so this book it contains experiments featuring uh, George Washington's rules of life, marital harmony, marital disharmony, <laughs> multitasking, and nudity, all of which are fascinating, but I wanted to ask you about radical honesty. So can you talk about your adventure with radical honesty and the lessons you took from it? Absolutely. Radical honesty is a movement that was started by a psychologist in Virginia, and he believes that we should never lie. But he goes further. He says that whatever's on our brain should come out of our mouth. There should be no filter. And he says this is the way to an authentic, happier life. So I tried that for a couple of months, and it was quite the nightmare <laughs> overall. <laughs> it was uh, it was not an easy couple of months because I mean his philosophy is if you, for instance, have a crush on your wife's sister, mm -hmm. you should tell your wife, and you should tell her sister. My wife doesn't have a sister, so that didn't apply to me. But there were many, many awkward moments. I remember one in particular where. We were in a restaurant and we ran into some of my wife's friends from college and she hadn't seen them in years and they were all excited and and the friends said, oh, we should all get together and we should you know, have a play date with our kids. And I was following radical honesty. So I had to say what was on my mind, which was, you seem very nice, but I really have no interest in getting together <laughs> with you again. Uh, because I, you know, it's more a time management thing. Absolutely. I don't get to see my, my real friends. So it was terribly awkward. I felt terrible. My wife was furious. They did not seem overjoyed. I mean, we never did see them again. So it was effective. Kind of works out. <laughs> effective outro. So I don't think total radical honesty is the way to go. So what what do you think you ought to have done? What do you think the, the ethical thing to do in that situation is? Because I, that comes up so frequently. And right. I'm, I'm tempted towards something closer to honesty than what we actually engage in. Not that. Right. Obviously, you want to be softer, but... Genuinely, I don't think that people should be going through with these obligations to meet, you know, acquaintances. This just doesn't seem like a good use of anyone's time. Agree. I mean, well, what, one what do you do, AJ? One of the things was this guy during this experiment, a freelance writer asked me if I would go to coffee with him. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I just got to be honest. The thought of it gives me dread. <laughs> and uh, and I was, you know, terrified to send it. But he wrote back. He's like, you know what? I am not very social either. Mm. It gives me dread, but I felt I had to do it for my career. And then we came to a compromise that we would talk on Skype. And that saved me time. And I think I got him the same amount of information. So I do agree. And that is the point that this psychologist is making, that sometimes we think of it as cruel to tell the truth, but in the long run, it's kinder. So if you yeah. have someone who's doing a career that you think is bad for the world or just a project that is going to end up going nowhere, maybe it is kinder to tell them right up front, you know what, I don't think that this is a good idea. Uh, so it's a balancing act, I think. I would say the lessons I took from this were that we do need more honesty in our lives, I tend to focus on two. One is honesty about when I screw up mm -hmm. and just admitting immediately, oh, I made a bad mistake there. I'm sorry. I'll try not to do it again. I do find that 
personally, just from a selfish point of view, much, much better because the stress of trying to cover it up or spin it in a way that makes you look okay, that's a lot of energy, a lot of mental energy. And the second way I think I've tried to increase my honesty is is in sort of expressing positive emotions, which can also be awkward and kind of cheesy. But I remember I called one of my mentors who I hadn't spoken to in 20 years, and he, but he was an editor at the first paper I worked at. And I said, I just want to tell you, I was thinking of you the other day and how much you meant to me. And, you know, again... From the uh, gender typical behavior, I'm not supposed to be so open and vulnerable. Show so much weakness. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I, it certainly made me feel good. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I can't speak for him, but I think that he liked it. He seemed to. So those kinds of honesty, and then the third one that you're talking about is like, should we just be a little more upfront about? awkward uh, mm. social engagements or 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 any type of task that we don't want it i i think so i'm i'm usually too much of a coward to do that but what do you think do you are you able to do it it's interesting yeah so i yeah i have sort of views on honesty that are a little bit different to most people where i have this basic default where i try to be completely honest not radically honest but not to tell any lies of commission at least versus omission to anyone with whom I want to form a long-form friendship or relationship. And I really try and stick to this. Hmm. And so I would say that I don't think I've ever lied to you. You know, this is only the second time we've ever spent time together. But, you know, I feel like, hey, you know, I, I wouldn't want to lie to AJ. And also I just feel like it just makes life so much easier to not have to, you know, not to keep track of your lies and, you know, oh, what did I tell this person? What did I tell that person? And so I, I take this, like, very seriously and actually – you know, proposed this to my now future wife at the start of our relationship years ago. And I said, like, I would really love if we were able to have a relationship where we actually legitimately never lied to each other as much as you can, keeping in mind that I don't want anyone to feel guilty and that if you lie, you just, you know, it's fine. But just like really genuinely uh, try to do this. And for us, I felt like given you're going to spend so much time with this person, I just saw this huge upside. And it was probably utopian, you know, to think that you could do this at the time, but it's actually worked out. So this is years later, we've spent, you know, some, you know, we've gone traveling together, spent just, you know, every minute of every day for like months together. And I have genuinely never told her a lie or a live commission, lies of omission constantly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, try and keep those within within balance. But what it does is it just means that, you know, you, you both have this incredibly close relationship because you do have to admit things, like things that are like very out there. But, you know, that creates, you know, a level of closeness if you're saying things you would never say to anyone else. I love it. Is there an example of a, tr- a difficult truth that you've told your girlfriend? So the, this just happened the other night. So we're at, I think it's Van Leeuwen Ice Cream Parlor here in New York. And she goes up and orders for us. And uh, she's going to get a waffle cone. I'm just going to get my ice cream in a cup. And she orders them. They hand it to us. And my girlfriend has a waffle cone that seems to have two scoops in it. You know, well-packed ice cream cone. I have a cup with very clearly one scoop (laughs) of ice cream. And I was just baffled. I was just like, why would you assume that I only wanted one scoop to your two scoops? Why would the, what kind of a strange assumption would this be? You know, we haven't had any discussions about me going on a diet or anything. Why wouldn't we have the same amount of ice cream? 
And I can imagine that in, you know, alternate worlds or in previous relationships, just keeping that to myself and just being a little bit bitter about it and going like, well, I didn't get as much ice cream here. And, uh, well, she's certainly enjoying her double serving of ice cream, but ah, it's, you know, fine. <laughs> but here I said, because of this honesty thing, I immediately just said, you know, what's with the one scoop? <laughs> what's this about? And she said, oh, like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, did you want two scoops? And I said, well, you know, I just... Probably whatever you were getting, I think that makes sense. And she said, no, no, I only got one scoop. It just sort of looks like it's bigger ah. from this, uh, you know, given that it was in the cone. But it was, so this is a silly example, but it is just something that the night would have just taken like a slightly worse turn where I'm just that sitting there thinking like, I feel like I'm, I'm not getting a fair amount of ice cream here. Right. I love I love that example. And in fact, uh, when I was doing the article, I was having lunch with a friend of mine and I said to him, you know, I, I have this resentment because you did not invite me to your wedding. Mm. It was in Vermont, so I wouldn't have gone because it would have been a pain to get there. But I just wanted to be invited. And he said, but you didn't invite me to your wedding. And I said, really? I thought he said, no. And I was like, oh, well, and this revelation was so freeing. Yeah, it's amazing. So some, yeah, I would agree. There are many times when being more honest than is sort of expected is beneficial. Well, that is, I think that's a lovely lesson. And I'm going to try to be more open with my wife even i I was gonna ask that did you feel like after this after this experiment did you feel like it changed your relationship in any way did you feel like you were more open i do think i am pretty yes and i think in the beginning of my relationship i definitely baited and switched my wife because i pretended to be someone who loved going out Mm -hmm. all the time (laughs) uh and then once we got married I, i revealed my true self which is more like you preferring to watch Netflix. So I think that I would not do that today. I'm much more open with my... So if if she wants me to do something, then I do try to say, you know, how important is it to you on a scale of one to 10? And because sometimes she'll invite me just because she thinks I want to go, but I don't. So that's helpful. I also have been honest. I wrote a piece on Valentine's Day about how What if we looked at romance in a more of a cost-benefit analysis? Because Charles Darwin wrote when he was considering whether to propose to his wife, Mm -hmm. who also was his cousin, uh, he wrote (laughs) a a list of pros and cons, you know, that he would have less time with the fellows, uh, (laughs) but there would be someone to be there when he was down. And I thought, you know, of course, it's kind of ridiculous and cartoonish, but also I kind of liked it. And so I do say to my wife, half jokingly, every Valentine's Day, the benefits of being married to you outweigh the cost. <laughs> but I do, you know, I say, you know, I, I love you, but there are things that annoy me. But overall, I, I love you very much. So okay, and, I, and I think that it might not work for everyone, but it works for our relationship so far. At least. Yeah. And to, to finish up this section, I'll just say that I am likely to get married in the U.S. I don't have any family here. I have very few people I know. Would you want to get an invitation to my wedding? Well, to be radically honest, <laughs> I would love to get an invitation. But not come? Well, it invitation, depends where it come? is. Okay. So the, if, we, if it was in New York? Definitely I'll be there. You would come? Absolutely. It's okay. We'll see about this. You, that, that is true. <laughs> that All right. is very true. Well, I'll keep that in mind. 
I'll be listen. You have it on tape. You have it on podcast. Uh, All right. right there. Well, I would be honored. But yeah, don't make me travel, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's let's turn now to probably your best known project. In 2007, you wrote The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. And I suspect many of our listeners will have read the book, uh, or at least be familiar with the project. But for those who haven't, can you give us a brief overview? Absolutely. Uh, The premise was just what the title says, which was I tried to follow all the rules of the Bible as literally as possible. So the Ten Commandments, the famous ones, but also the lesser known rules, mostly in the Old Testament. It says you cannot shave the corners of your beard. I didn't know where the corners were, so I just let the whole thing grow. And I had this crazy topiary from my chin. I looked like Ted Kaczynski. Mm-hmm. That's one, one value of getting the book. You get to see the photos of you. That, and the, oh, I do think, you know, people are very visual. I think having photos of the beard was like 70% of <laughs> the sales. Uh, yeah. And then the Bible says that you should stone adulterers. So at least I tried. I used very small stones like pebbles. So I didn't actually hurt anyone or go to jail. But but that was the idea. And I think there were two motivations for doing this project. The first was to try to expose or make fun of fundamentalism, Mm -hmm. because I was basically becoming the ultimate fundamentalist. And there are millions of people who say, oh, we take the Bible literally. That's why homosexuality is a sin. That's why we believe the earth was created 6,000 years ago. But it seemed to me they were very selective. So they were not taking everything literally. They were taking the parts that they wanted literally. So they were not avoiding clothes made of two different kinds of fabrics, which is also in the Bible. So I wanted to show what it would look like if you took every Everything literally and how absurd it is and that fundamentalism is deeply misguided. So that was one motivation. The second motivation was a little more earnest, which was I grew up very secular. You know, no, I, I say in the book, I'm Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the way, same way the Olive Garden is Italian. So not very, but I wanted to see, you know, there are tons of smart people, billions who embrace religion. So am I missing something by not having this experience? Are there, are there good parts of religion that I can take away? So those were the, the two reasons why I undertook it. And in case I forget, I want to just mention that I loved this book. So I just want to specifically recommend that everyone go out and read this book. Oh, well, thank you. You make me commit the sin of pride. It's very (laughs) unbiblical, but that is lovely to hear. Looking back, because it's been a while now since, since you wrote this book, how big of an impact do you think this experience had in your life? I would say it has had pretty long-lasting effects. First of all, it it was sort of the inspiration for the gratitude book because the Bible has a lot about gratitude. So I was, I was introduced to that concept. I also, you know, there are many terrible things in the Bible. It is a very tribal book and, you know, there are horrible, horrible scenes of violence and misogyny and homophobia. So, but there are also some parts that are inspiring and, you know, I think that the the biblical way of looking at the world, they did not value individualism all that much. So it was all about responsibilities to your society, to your tribe, you know, honor the elderly, honor your parents, help your neighbor. So 
I think we need a balance. You need individual rights or else you, you know, you become like North Korea. You, you know, they're, they're huge downsides to ignoring individual rights. But I do think we've swung too far on the side of individual rights versus social responsibility. So I do think the Bible sort of helped me see that we need to correct that a little. We need more of a balance. And also the final th- rituals. You know, I still am a total atheist, but I do think that you don't need to believe in a mythical being to have meaningful rituals. Mm. So I do like a good ritual. And what what are some of your favorite rituals that you actually actually do in your everyday life? Well, I would say, you know, even something like a birthday, you know, that's a ritual and I love a good birthday party. I, you know, my, we're Jewish and my son's just had a a double bar mitzvah. And again, I, I have many issues with Judaism, but one thing I do like about it is that it encourages questioning. So in their speeches, they actually questioned whether the Bible had one did the story of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham almost killing his son. And so one of my sons are, you know, is this a good way? This is probably not someone we want to emulate. So I love that you're able to wrestle with uh, with things. So I would say, yeah, rituals I like. But again, the downsides of religion, there's there's massive ones. And to me, one of one of the things I think I was too soft on in the book mm-hmm. is the idea of this sort of knowledge by revelation, you know, believing in God without evidence, because I think it makes it very hard to argue with someone when you say, you know, well, let's talk about abortion. And they'll say, well, you know, life starts at conception and life is sacred. And you know, what do you mean by sacred? You know, life is sacred. God gave us life. Life is sacred. The end of argument. You know, there's just nothing. You can't go anywhere from there. So I think I was too soft on that. If I were to go back, I might be a little, a little tougher. I mentioned to you once, from a purely mercenary point of view, I thought maybe I should have three endings to the book. One where I became an evangelical Christian, one where I become really a hardcore Sam Harris-like atheist, and one where I maybe become a practicing Jew. And that could sell in different parts of the country. <laughs> uh, but I thought maybe a little misleading. You could have potentially included all three endings in the same book. Maybe you don't have to have a, a specific yeah, ending. vote there. on it. Yeah, that's a good idea for the reprint. A question here came from Arden, who asked, it seems like there are a million different ways that one could choose to live a year as an experiment, but we only have so many years. So why did you decide to spend a year living in that particular way? I think that one was because so many millions of people say that their lives are ruled by the Bible. (laughs) I, I do get suggestions from readers, which I love, on other projects I could do, you know, and, you know, why don't you take up the French horn for a year? You know, and I don't know. To me, that doesn't have, I try to take the biggest topics Mm -hmm. and explore them. So, you know, health, religion, knowledge, and, you know, I I don't know if I... Family? Family. And in one sense, it's bad because they're so big and they're daunting. But in the other sense, I just think, you know, as... Arden says you only have so many years, so why not try to tackle the big ones? Okay, so the year of Living Biblically was turned into a CBS sitcom called Living Biblically, which aired in 2018. Do you feel like talking about how big a disaster that was? 
<laughs> I love the question. Very honest. It really was a disaster. And from my gratitude project, I wanted to say up front that I'm very grateful for the experience because it was it was a surreal and in some ways delightful experience. But in other ways, the show that came out of it was just a disaster and polar opposite of what I was trying to get across. And I, and I want to just say that the people who worked on the show were incredibly creative and funny. I think part of the problem was the network, CBS, mm -hmm. really dumbed down the show. And I also think TV is just a hard medium to get across nuance. And to me, I knew we were in trouble when the actor who was cast to play me wanted to grow a beard, as I did in the book. But CBS said, no, that might scare off viewers. Like, oh, wow. So uh, I, knew, I knew we were in trouble. And the actor has a beard in Mad Men. There you go. The actor plays Stan in yeah. Mad Men and is a delightful actor, and I'm a big fan. But yeah, they, as I said, the idea was sort of to expose the dangers of fundamentalism. But the, the thesis of the show seemed to be, if you live by the Bible, your life will be better. Like if you, mm. if you don't gossip, you will get a promotion. So it was so cringeworthy. I was like, you know, honestly, incredibly relieved when it was canceled after about seven airings. And, you know, I felt bad for the people involved, but, oh, it was just, uh, I found it incredibly painful to watch. Uh, yeah. I was... <laughs> So my, my future wife and I were watching, we watched the pilot yesterday. So that was as part of my research for this interview. That's the kind of research that goes on at 80,000 hours where Love it. we help tackle the world's most pressing problems <laughs> and how you can use a career to solve it. I have to watch a CBS sitcom every now and again. <laughs> and so Chloe also loves your books and we read them together and we just watched it together and just turned to each other and went, oh, no, like, <laughs> what's happened? Like, AJ must have thought this was a disaster because it's just <laughs> this. It's just so different from your books. And, uh, you know, for example, they have like this like very extreme laugh track. And I just, you know, I, I can't imagine that this is something that you would have sat down and gone, yeah, this, this is my vision. No, uh, so I was just wondering, yeah, how much influence did you actually have? Over zero, zero. zero. Okay. I like, I saw. I, that, that makes sense. That I, was my prediction. Yeah, I gave them the rights and, and I didn't make suggestions but none of them were were heated and i mean all my experiences with hollywood have been delightful on one sense but disastrous in another mm. the year of living biblically before that they tried to turn it into a reality show so i met with the producers and they said yeah we really want to show the nuances of how the bible can be good and bad and i was like that is so great cut to Six months later, we're in a cable network geared to young men, and they're pitching the network executives on a show called The, the Bible Olympics, which was uh, <laughs> men, like shirtless men, running down a mountain holding the Ten Commandments. Who can get to the bottom first? And I was like, huh, this seems a little far from my uh, source material but <laughs> so thankfully that never happened but it was almost like a parody of a movie you know of how hollywood works like it just actually you know as people say this is an amazing time for television there are some great things out there 
But it's also there's so much crap because it's a very hard medium to get across. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but, but this is such a good premise for a show. It's just that's part of the tragedy. It's not just I mean, obviously, this is a common complaint that people, you know, if, if a book is made into a TV show or a movie, ah, oh, they didn't do it well, the book was better. But this seems like you could make a good TV show about it. And it was just frustrating to watch and just go like, oh, all you have to do is just let AJ write this. Like, and so I was, wondering, I was wondering, were you interested in that? Were you inter- would you have an interest in being a showrunner on a, on a no, show? No, I don't you, think I have the skill no set. I mean, okay. maybe if I worked at it for 10 years. But no, I don't think I could have done a much better job. I think really? it's a very hard thing to do. I would bet a lot of money that you could. Well, you're very nice, Kieran. But honestly, I'm being totally radically honest. I, really? I mean, I, I did write a screenplay based on my first book because that got out optioned and uh, and my first book by the way was about reading the encyclopedia so, okay so not the two kings not oh yeah Elvis Al- Al- and Jesus that's true technically that is my first okay, book I just know a little bit more about your career than you do so that's okay <laughs> that. it's fine <laughs> this is my first real book yeah. Um, but yeah I mean the premise of that book was I read every word in the encyclopedia so everyone said well so the guy's gonna the movie's gonna be a guy in a room reading for an hour and a half so that wasn't quite the screenplay but that was part of the problem of why it never made it to a screen but yeah no it's a very difficult and challenging skill that i don't have interesting and i suppose it obviously involves a lot of collaboration which Mm -hmm. which i've heard you say that you know you're conflicted because you both promote teamwork and collaboration for your sons but then you just really would prefer writing alone oh yeah i am a hypocrite because i do think all the biggest problems need a ton of collaboration and that's the lesson i teach my sons hopefully they're not listening because i personally hate collaboration and every time i do it it drives me crazy so uh, I, I need to get over that. I need to, but I, I just find it. How do you feel about this podcast episode? This is a collaboration. This yeah. is us. All right. This I'm okay with. This is fun. This is, you know, yeah, versus versus me just, you know, asking questions and then you're just answering them. I could be in a different room. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try that for, uh, we'll do another episode. <laughs> we'll do a randomly controlled trial where we do a totally separate so let's talk about your latest book, Thanks a Thousand, A Gratitude Journey. Can you talk a little bit about the inspiration for the book and just give a general overview for anyone who isn't familiar? Sure. The idea of the book is that I thanked a thousand people who had even the smallest role in making my morning cup of coffee. So I thanked the barista who served it to me, but also the farmer who grew the coffee beans and the logo designer for the coffee and the truck driver who drove the coffee beans. But he couldn't do his job without the road. So I thanked the people who paved the road. And I thanked the people who painted the yellow lines in the middle of the road so that uh, it didn't veer into traffic. So the idea was to try to show the hundreds of people involved in any small thing in our lives and the hundreds of things that go right every day that we take for granted. And we have this built-in negative bias, which might have served us back in Paleolithic days, But we are very good at noticing the three or four that go wrong. Mm. So the idea was to try to reverse that. And I actually went and I thanked people. I saw some I thanked in person, some I thanked over the phone or by email. And, and some people, you know, were very skeptical. They said, is this a pyramid scheme? What, what are you trying to sell? 
But the majority were actually very grateful to be thanked. And I remember I called the woman who does pest control for the warehouse where the coffee beans are stored. And I said, I know this sounds odd, but I do want to thank you for helping to keep the bugs out of my coffee. And she said, well, that is odd, but thank you. You know, and I don't get a lot of positive feedback in my in my job. So it was, in some senses, a pain in the butt because I had to travel and spend sure. all my day like writing thank you notes but in the other sense it was it was lovely because it was it was good for my mental health yeah do you want to expand on that do you feel like you've you've taken a lot of things away from the book do you feel like you have an increased sense of gratitude in your day-to-day life now I do. I definitely do. I mean, I uh, talk in the book about we all have our Larry David side and our Mr. Rogers side. And my Larry David side, I think, was very large and still is very powerful. So as is mine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, and I, I enjoy watching Larry David from the outside, but he, being in that mindset is not necessarily good. So I do think it's, it's still a struggle every day, but it helped change my perspective. I mean, one thing I talked about in the book is just trying to adjust your frame. So there's the cliche about half glass full or versus mm-hmm. half glass empty. And I suggest maybe that that is the wrong way to look at it. Maybe we should just be astonished that we have water in that cup in the first place, because I had to thank the people who brought water to New York because coffee is 98.8% water. And I met the thousands of people at the reservoir who do this. And it drove home just how astounding it is that I can turn this lever and have safe, drinkable water, which was not the case for 99% of human history and is still not the case for billions of people around the world. Mm. So that's what maybe we should focus on. And I actually, since, as I say, I try to get effective altruism into every one of my projects, I did interview Will McCaskill, mm-hmm. one of the founders of Effective Altruism, and we talked about a couple of issues that were relevant, one of which was the coffee that I buy in one cent, it's ridiculously expensive, $3.00 at the local coffee shop. And if you add that up over a year, that's $1,000. So should I be spending that $1,000 on malaria nets? And he, and maybe he was just being nice, but he said there's an argument to be made that it's okay to spend money on the small luxuries of life because they're so important to your mental health. So you... um, He does sincerely believe this, by the way. Does he he spend $3 on coffee? I don't know if he spends (laughs) $3 on coffee, but I can say that (laughs) I've heard the same thing myself. I think it's a... I mean, I compared it... There's the saying, uh, penny wise and pound foolish. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of the opposite, being penny foolish and pound wise. So when it comes to big purchases like cars or clothes, then, you know, you should be much more wary of spending a lot of money. But the coffee is something that could make you feel better and fuel, you know, you need caffeine to do good. And then the other issue I talked to him about was this idea of whether gratitude is overall good for changing the world or not, because there are people who say that gratitude is sort of a hindrance then it's like an opiate of the people. So corporations will tell their Walmart employees, oh, you should just be grateful you have a job. But the research I saw anyway 
seem to say this was not the case, that gratitude actually inspires us to want to make more changes. So when you're grateful, you want to pay it forward. And I saw this on a very small scale. You know, like When I'm in the times of my life when I've been depressed, it's very hard to motivate myself to care about other people. And one of the ways to do it is to try and force myself to think about other people. And this gratitude trail did just that. You know, it, it reminded me how lucky I am to have water. So how can we help people get safe water? Yeah, I mean, and not only that, things that come up every day uh, all over the place. So like, I think you talk in the book about when you're waiting in line, you know, normally you'd say, this is ridiculous. Why? I mean, it's just like long queue, but you never notice the times when you're in the short queue. So just having this different framing seemed to be like incredibly effective for just being able to increase your happiness. Absolutely. Yeah. Just noticing, even sometimes saying out loud, like, wow, I was just on the shortest line possible at the pharmacy. I should remember that. Do you think that most people would experience the same benefits from this kind of thinking? Or do you think that you're somewhat of an outlier to being open to experimentation? So you, you take this more seriously than maybe the average person would. It's hard for me to know. But from what I've seen, and personally and with the studies, I think it is overall, it's not just good for people's mental health, but it is good for motivating them. And this, I think, is an interesting debate in the EA community mm -hmm. about motivating people with negative versus positive emotions, because you can totally get overwhelmed by the guilt. Like when you first read Peter Singer, you're like, oh, my God, I'm I'm a murderer. You know, I've got blood on my hands because I all these people I should be donating all of my money. And that that might be motivating to some people. To me, it was just overwhelming and yes. and dispiriting. But instead, framing it like, and I think Peter and Will both talk about this, as something empowering. Like you can, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. You can save people. Like you can be that person who runs into a building and saves the baby, but you don't have to burn yourself. You know, you can actually save people's lives by donating. You can be Oscar Schindler. And that I find more motivating. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, this is probably my biggest common thing that I bring up with you know, fellow people in the effective altruism community is that I have this very anti-guilt stance, which not everybody does. Some mm. people find guilt to be motivating. But I think there's also this aspect that even if you thought you ought to feel guilty for something, which I think is philosophically mistaken, I think we agree <laughs> on that. Uh, we might get into that later. But I think even if you were just looking from an impact point of view and you wanted to do the most good of your career, I think this tendency towards feeling an enormous amount of guilt will tend to lead people towards burning out far faster. So if we care about doing the most good over the course of our careers, so you know, whether that's 40, 50 years, whatever it is, if you burn out after five years, well, there's no way that you've done the most good you could have done. If you had to just dial it back a little bit, you know, you, you learn from these mistakes, you hopefully don't make them again. Even if you do, that's okay. If you just have this attitude of, look, I'm doing the best I can, and I'll continue to do that, and more or less think well of yourself for that, you can't ask more than doing, doing the best you can. I think that that is actually the way to have the most impact, in addition to being the best for people psychologically. I love that. And I also think is, there's a distinction between forward-looking and backward-looking. And I do yes. think guilt is a lot of backward-looking. I'm guilty that I should have done this already. But if you're looking forward, you're, you're more motivated. Okay, from this point on, what can I do that will make the world better? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, one, once you're at a point where you've already, let's say you, you have made a genuine mistake, the question is, well, how much more can you learn from this mistake beyond the first 
you know, 30 seconds that you beat yourself up about it. Because people will, you know, naturally beat themselves up, and I, and I, I will too, potentially. But there's such a difference psychologically between, you know, being mad at yourself for 30 seconds or a minute, five minutes, 10, an hour, and then, you know, some people, months, you know, they'll just right. beat themselves up about something for maybe even years. You are getting, you know, there are such <laughs> diminishing returns right. for feeling this guilt. And that if you can just, if you can recognize within a minute, and, you know, I recommend meditation for this, but if you can recognize, oh, I'm just feeling guilty now, okay, guilty, you note it, move on, hopefully learn the lessons. Uh, I think everybody wins. You were an inspiration. I love this. <laughs> I'm going to try even less guilt. I try not to feel it because, yeah, I do think it's debilitating. But it's so natural to sort of want to wallow in it as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And it is natural, but then uh, it all just comes back to this point of that you ought not to feel guilty about feeling guilty. There you go. You're always winning. Can you tell our audience why you think we're getting birthdays wrong? Oh, yeah. Well, birthdays is all about the person who is being born, Mm -hmm. and uh, we elevate them. But it occurred to me that they didn't really do a lot of the work. They just came out. And the person who went through all the pain and bodily contortions is the mother. So shouldn't birthdays more be about the mother who put in all the work. So that's when I, on my birthday, I try to thank my mother for having me instead. You know, I try to turn it around. And, you know, I thought, can I start a movement? Can you, I I actually thought Labor Day would be a good name, but that's already already taken. taken. So if someone has to come up with a good name for the birthday, birthing day, maybe birthing day. So it's more about the action as opposed to the passive recipient. I love that. So in 2012, you wrote the book Drop Dead Healthy, One Man's Humble Quest for Bodily Perfection. It's a tale of your quest to be as healthy as humanly possible. How important do you think this project was for your own well-being, and what are your main takeaways of this several years later? I would say I've had a couple of big takeaways. I mean, it has changed my behavior somewhat. Not as huge as you might think. I still do. I have a treadmill, and I write all Mm -hmm. of my emails. I, I walk on my treadmill and work. I don't run on it. I you know walk at grandfather's pace. So it's changed that. It's changed my diet a bit to more towards real food as opposed to processed food. But one of the big takeaways was I am so much more skeptical when reading health journalism mm. or health books because 95% of it is just evidence-free and and crap because i do think if you were to sum up all of the health evidence evidence-based health recommendations you could do it in like a page yeah (laughs) exercise when you can eat real food don't try to lower stress get sleep don't smoke don't 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 eat a mountain of sugar don't eat a mountain (laughs) of sugar don't hit yourself in the face with an axe. You know, it's pretty, it's pretty basic stuff. Mm-hmm. But the hell, you know, you've got to, there's the, the novelty bias in journalism. And the, everything has to be new and unexpected or else no one wants to read it. So, you know, and you, there's the one study problem. You can find a study to, to justify anything. You know, there is a study that says bacon will make you live till you're 150. Sure. I'm sure. So I'm very skeptical reading health journalism. I did think the useful category of knowledge was not what is healthy, because I think we all know, but what strategies are there 
to try to behave in a healthy way. And I do think that that has changed me and made things better. And I can give you an example. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one is this idea of respecting your older self, mm -hmm. which Love is this one. So this is, I think a Yale professor had come up with this idea that we have our current self who wants to sit on the couch and eat Cheetos, and we've got the future self which wants to be alive. So the more the study, some studies anyway, show that the more you think about your future self, the more responsibly you'll act, both in financial matters, but also in health. So I tried to make this as as sort of concrete as possible. And I printed out a picture of myself. I, I did one of those digital aging software and printed out a picture of myself as a 70-year-old and put it above my desk. And, and when I was thinking, you know, should I eat this caramel popcorn? And I see my 70-year-old self. I just like, you know what? Let me be kind. Let me treat that person like I would anyone else. Sure. And, and actually thinking about it, I realized it is a bit of long-termism applied on a very personal level mm. because you are, you, know, you are trying to think of your future self, not just... And I think I love the idea that we are not just one self. I think the idea of self as, as a unity is, is wrong in many ways, and, and one of them is through time. I really think I've changed a tremendous amount since when I was young, I think I've mentioned to you, I don't like the younger version of myself. Mm -hmm. I think he's an asshole. So anyway, I think using this idea of multiple selves and future self is very powerful. So that's one thing I learned. Absolutely. Um, I, I just wanted to ask you, sure. do, does this have real implications for your day-to-day -day life and your interactions with other people? I think it's got its costs and benefits. I mean, one benefit, I do think I'm much more forgiving than I used to be. And it also affects how I look at my life, because as I say, I really don't like the selfish asshole that I was. You know, I, I'm still selfish, I think, because, you know, that's part of human nature. But I, I fight it. I am, I'm less than I was. So it makes me hate my former self, but also I forgive my former self. You know, yeah. I like, as you say, I couldn't have done otherwise. So the best I can do is try to be better in the future. I mean, this comes back to our conversation about guilt is an easy thing for to try and point out, not an easy thing to hear, but an easy thing to point out for someone who is, is very angry at themselves or even depressed is to ask, you know, how would you feel if your friend made a similar mistake or was having the same thoughts? And people generally will be much kinder to their friends. Mm -hmm. They will say, you know, of course, you know, you shouldn't feel bad about this. Of course, you shouldn't be mad at yourself. And yet when it comes to yourself, we have these much different standards. But really, if you, again, you know, if you take this seriously and you say like, well, you know, I'm feeling terrible about the thing that former me did. Well, just show the same level of compassion that you do to one of your friends or even someone who's closer than a friend, someone like a twin. Right. And if you take that seriously, you can just relieve this this burden of just, you know, self-hatred. It can it can melt away. I love that. Although, of course, then I do feel guilty about maybe I'm letting myself off too easily and it's a rationalization. Sure. But, but I do think if you follow, if you take the philosophical premises to their to their logical conclusion that's the way to act. And, and I do think it's improved my life. Beautiful.
What are people in our audience potentially undervaluing when it comes to health? You know, should they pay more attention to improving their noses or their hands or anything else you investigated? <laughs> well, yeah, the book was divided into sections. So like improving your hand health, improving your, your, your sense of smell. It's fun to look back on what my former self wrote and be a little judgmental because I think that I, I was way too quick to believe certain experts. You know, it, it really is remarkable that I could find an expert with great credentials. I remember I was at this, at this conference and there was a woman, and I think it was Johns Hopkins, but it, it was something equivalent of that. And she was a professor. And, and one of her suggestions was that women should go on a trampoline every day because the movement of their breasts releases toxins and helps prevent cancer. And I was like, well, should I tell my wife? <laughs> should we get a trampoline? And I looked and I could find zero research to back this up. So it is remarkable how much people peddle this snake oil. At the same time, I am very pro-science. So my heuristic is more believe experts, plural, but not any single expert, because you can have an expert who is just has a very idiosyncratic view based on nothing. But it's a really tough question because you do you want to have this epistemic humility, even when it comes to science. But you also don't want to give science deniers uh, fuel for their anti-science beliefs. So I'm very reluctant to advise people to do anything mm. except, as I said, that very basic. But, you know, using these strategies, that I feel comfortable advising them. So respecting your older self or, or micro goals, that I found very useful. So, for instance, every morning I wake up and I, I say, I'm not going to guarantee to myself that I'm going to go on the treadmill, but I am going to put on my sneakers and shorts, which is what I'm wearing now. And then once I put on the sneakers, I'm like, well, the sneakers are on. I might as well get on the treadmill just for a minute. You know, I'll get off if I want after that. And then once you're on, you stay on for you know, 20 minutes. So micro goals I found very useful. But yeah, I don't, um, I would say look for good strategies as opposed to trying to find some new miracle cure or, you know, potion or, you know, elixir. Can you tell us about this idea of blackmailing yourself? Yeah, this is one of the most effective strategies I found when I was doing the book on health. And this was the idea, again, taking advantage of your future self. So the idea was, to give you an example, I used to be addicted to these dried mangoes, which they may sound healthy because they're fruit, but really... They're just sugar. It's like disguised candy. And I knew I had to cut them out. So I, I used this trick, which was, I think, uh, invented by a, a Yale professor, where I said to my wife, here's a check for $100. If I have another dried mango, then I want you to mail that check. But the catch is it was a check to the American Nazi party. And every time I even thought about having a, a dried mango, I'm like, I am not going to, I'm not going to fund the laces in their jackboots. I'm not going to give any, and it was incredibly effective. It was such a great disincentive that it worked. You know, I have not eaten a mango, a dried mango in years and like, you know, whatever it was, it's been 10 years. Does it still stand? Yeah, it still works. Oh, wow. I mean, I would be careful. You might also want to have 
once a week you can violate this because mm-hmm. but i do find and there are websites that i think are still around where you can sign up and do this sort of anti-charity strategy but i found it incredibly effective would you recommend it for people in the effective altruism community because i was thinking that them more than most people would be like very against oh, this yeah. idea of that would really know, just tear them misused. up or maybe they could just make a check out to an ineffective charity. That's true. <laughs> Good cost. <laughs> uh, do you I think ha- that the good would out- outweigh the bad? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's dangerous. I think, luckily, I think the effective altruism community is, my guess is that they have more willpower than than the average population. So I think that it would be good. I mean, it is a dangerous strategy because if, if it's going to work, you really do have to mail that check if you blow it. Do you still meditate? Oh, man. Yes and no. I know intellectually how important it is. And I try to do, you know, whenever I'm sitting alone, like uh, waiting for someone at a restaurant, I will try. I will say the way I comfort myself is that I do think I'm, I'm pretty good at metacognition. I'm pretty good at thinking about what I'm thinking and is this a healthy thing and catching myself as I go down dark alleys. And I think that is one of the advantages of meditation. So I think, you know, with or without meditation, I do do okay at that. But, you know, I wish I did more. But you, you meditate. I do. Yeah. Every day? Every day. Yeah. For how long? 10 minutes. Uh, and what do you use? Do you use an I app? I use Sam Harris's app. Oh, you do? So the Waking Up app. Well, actually, you know, what was very helpful is that Chloe and I do it together. So, you know, obviously it's very easy to just forget about this, but we have, we have alarm set. And then if one of us doesn't feel like it, the other one will say like, do you want to meditate? And then you kind of just are dragged into it. Hmm. So every day we sit down 10 minutes and we do that together. And it's, you know, obviously people do the same thing for gym buddies or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, I find is that it, to be very helpful. Is it one particular program on the Sam Harris app? Uh, so we do the daily meditations. So like it starts off with there's 50 and then you do, it comes into this sort of cycle of meditations where it's more or less the same thing, but then there'll be different introductions and slight differences here and there. But yeah, so it changes every day. All right. I'm in. I'm going to try it. I recommend it. I really do. I think it's another way into what we we're talking about earlier, which is these ideas about the self. Within meditation, you're, you know, maybe you're just focusing on the breathing and then your mind will wander to, you know, whichever the last friends episode you saw was. And then, you know, you come back and you'll realize that you're thinking. And so you'll have a mental note of, okay, thinking, thinking. And Sam, unlike other apps, he'll constantly try and get you to ask the further question, which is, where is the thinker? So you're like, where did that thought arise? And mm. I found that to be very effective. Because if you really, if you ask yourself that question, you know, the, the answer is, right. sh- should be like, oh, it's not coming from anywhere. Yeah. The thought, thoughts simply arise and you don't know where they came from. And it's just a series of thoughts over and over, over again. And you just sit there for 10 minutes and you realize that the more you pay attention, the more thoughts you'll catch. And noticing that is very helpful. And to be a little bit more practical about it, it's very helpful in day-to-day life to reduce negative emotions. Uh, using anger as an easy example. If you find yourself being angry at anything, whether that's yourself or the external world or Trump or you know, whatever it is, you find yourself being angry, if you actually just make the mental note of just anger, it just cuts through it. It's very difficult to continue to be angry, continue to be caught up in the, this actual emotion if you keep labeling it. Just anger, anger, I, anger. I love, you know... I- even without meditation, I try to do that. Absolutely. Labeling your emotions, I think. That's, that is powerful. But all right, I'm sold. I'm going to try it. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> 
Moving on to your earliest book. So in 2004, you wrote The Know-It-All, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World, after spending 18 months reading the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. So I just wanted to ask, what was the inspiration for this project? And for our younger listeners, what is the Encyclopedia Britannica? <laughs> Excellent questions. Yeah, they, they don't print it anymore. It's the encyclopedia, so every volume had a different letter. And... It was Wikipedia, but before Wikipedia, and they stopped printing it soon after I read it. But it's an, it was a crazy long book. It's 33,000 pages, 44 million words. And I was inspired because my dad, he loves knowledge and reading, and he decided... He wanted to read the encyclopedia to learn everything. And uh, he didn't quite finish. He made it up to the middle of the bees, like Borneo or Boomerang, somewhere in there. And then he realized he had a life. But I thought it might be an interesting <laughs> idea to try to finish what he began, remove that dark stain on our family history. But uh, it was also sort of, uh, I, I wanted to talk about knowledge versus wisdom and also just fill in the enormous gaps in my in my education. So I'm never going to climb Mount Everest. I'm not a particularly physical person, but I thought this might be a fun intellectual version of Mount Everest. Absolutely. I think it's a great idea. Did you struggle to convince a publisher that this was a, this was a great idea for a book? Weirdly, no. The publisher liked it from the start. It was, uh, it was more my family who okay. I think suffered <laughs> yeah. uh, because, as you can imagine, I had a little too much enthusiasm for the knowledge I was gaining, mm -hmm. and I inserted it into conversation. And, and my wife started to penalize me $1 for every <laughs> irrelevant fact. So the idea was, you know, if she said, I have a headache, and I would say, well, did you know that the Bayer Aspirin Company in invented heroin because it was thought of as a cough suppressant initially and it turned out to have some negative side effects but and then at that point she'd be like okay that's another dollar so yeah it was not and, and i guess that was part of the plot was how ridiculously irritating i became <laughs> so in the book you wrote that a question you hated getting at the time was how much of the information are you retaining which brings me to a question from one of our listeners, Rob Wiblin, who asks, <laughs> how much of the encyclopedia do you remember? I'm furious. I would say certainly less than 1%, probably less than half a percent. Mm -hmm. But even that is better than I was. And I can't really control what I remember. So that's a problem. You know, sometimes it's things like opossums have 13 nipples, which is not a piece of information that I think will make the world a better place, but I just can't get it out of my mind. So yeah, I did not retain everything. I will say, though, there were a couple of takeaways from the book that that did make my life better. So it was not a completely ridiculous way to spend a year and a half, just mostly ridiculous. And what were those takeaways? Well, I'd say there are two big ones. One is we had mentioned epistemic humility, this idea that, you know, we know so little. And this really drove that home, just realizing how much of history that I was unaware of and how warped my view was. So I remember reading in the tea section about the Taiping Rebellion in China. And that occurred at about the same time as the U.S. Civil War. 
And it's a fascinating story. It was a man who thought he was the younger brother of Jesus, and he created a cult, and he marched on the empire, and it was a huge civil war in China, and 20 million people died during the Taiping Rebellion. You know, who knows how accurate that estimate is, but certainly that is multiple times more than the U.S. Civil War, which is about seven, 800,000. And the fact that I had maybe vaguely heard of the Taiping Rebellion, it just showed me how warped my view was and how certain things were totally out of, which is, I think, a very effective altruism mm. idea. You know, we focus on what's geographically mm-hmm. close, whereas, you know, this happened and it was just in terms of human lives, such a bigger deal. So there was that lesson of epistemic humility. And then the second big lesson was, this was before Steven Pinker wrote all of his books and essays about the idea of you know progress is real, the enlightenment values are good. But that was one of my takeaways is that you know, the good old days were not good. The good old days were terrible. They were disease-ridden, violent, sexist, homophobic, filthy, and smelly. You know, you couldn't believe, just reading that, we're looking at a New York street now. If this were in the 1800s, you know, the horse manure would literally be piled. They would sweep it to the side and it would be up to, you know, at least our waists. So it, it is astounding how in some ways the world has gotten better. You know, I I think that there's nuances, you know, factory farming is uh, an obvious counterexample and the the threat of nuclear war and other existential threats. If something does go wrong, it's going to be a lot worse. But it definitely taught me not to be nostalgic, not to glorify the past. And I think that that is a very dangerous bias. And I think that's part of the reason Donald Trump is, as president, you know, make America great again is this whole nostalgia myth. So reading the encyclopedia really helped cure me of that. Did you come close to giving up on reading the complete encyclopedia? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing that kept me going is the threat of public humiliation, sure. which I think is a great motivator, Powerful. maybe underused. I try to use it now. You know, I used to be a little secretive about my projects in case they didn't work out. But now I'm just out there, you know, here's what I'm doing because it, it really does motivate me to finish. Otherwise, people are like, what, what happened? What? Uh, so I do recommend using public humiliation to motivate yourself. And that, that played a big part in this one. Do you keep a list of favorite entries? One of my, the favorite little traditions, habits that I have is I keep a file on my computer called One Thing. And after every podcast or book or movie, I try to write down one thing that I loved. Because otherwise I find if I try to remember more than that, then I forget everything. But if I don't do that, then it's all a blur. So having this one little nugget that I can go back to and look, and I love going back to, I have it on my phone. And so it could be Yeah, I listened to a podcast about Michelangelo and how much he hated painting the Sistine Chapel. 
and how much self-doubt he had. And he's like, I'm a sculptor, not a painter. And he wrote to his friends, this is going to be the end of me. This is such a disaster. And this is one of the great works of Western mm. civilization. So if he can have self-doubt and think it's going to be a disaster, that that gives me a little bit more hope that when I'm in the depths of despair, maybe I'm deluding myself a bit. Did you find that the increased knowledge came in handy much, or was it mostly just interesting? Well, that's very generous of you to have that as the two choices, because <laughs> I'm not sure either you of them. You have two choices. <laughs> that is very nice. Yeah, I would say, I mean, there was three times where it came in actually handy when I, my friend who hates cilantro and the recipe called for coriander. And I knew from the encyclopedia that coriander is the British way of saying cilantro, and it saved the day. It was a heroic moment. So, but that, <laughs> those were few and far between. And the, and the fact that it was, you know, it was not a life and death situation tells you something. But um, I'd say, you know, occasionally I will be able to say things that are of interest to other people, but I try to be much more restrained. But it did, I think, one thing that it made me more excited about how much fascinating knowledge there is. So it really stoked my curiosity. So reading about someone like Victoria Woodhull, who I had never heard of, but she was a 19th century early feminist, first woman to run for president, first female stockbroker, renowned psychic, which I always thought, great combination, psychic stockbroker. <laughs> you makes want sense. that? So I just love, you know, and there are just like three paragraphs on her, but it inspired me to dig deeper and read a biography of her. So it was it was inspiring in that it, it was like there is so much interesting knowledge out there. I love that. Could you tell us about the experience of the weeks following the release of your first book? What was that like? Well, it's interesting because as a writer, a lot of your job is marketing, which I didn't realize. Yeah. And they're totally different skill sets. So I had to get out there and try to sell my book. At first, I hated it, but I tried to reframe it as, you know what? Marketing and business can be creative. So why don't I try to do this creatively? So how can I, you know, I, I wanted to get into every magazine when there were still magazines. So I pitched an article to Sports Illustrated about the, you know, the weirdest sports trivia through history. And I got that. So it was a lesson in taking something that I feared and hated the prospect of and trying to reframe it as something creative. And I once interviewed the artist Christo, Christo and Jean-Claude, who put up these mm -hmm. amazing public works of art. Which, from an EA perspective, that money could have gone to <laughs> feeding a lot of people. But still, I find them interesting. And they worked on this project that was right here in New York. They put up these 10,000 colorful gates in Central Park, and it took them 24 years to get permission. And I said to them, how did you have the stamina to do this for 24 years? And they replied, they saw the bureaucracy as part of the art. Like navigating yeah. all of this paperwork and applying that the art was not just the finished product. And it's it's a crazy idea, but it was also lovely, you know, this idea that the boring parts of your job are also, if you, you can turn them, you can reframe them as creative, it makes, it makes your job much more pleasant. 
Okay, so overall, your first book, it was warmly embraced by most major media outlets, including Time, Newsweek, and the Washington Post. But sometimes you get negative reviews, and I wanted to ask you about, you know, how do you respond to these negative reviews, or how have you in the past, and maybe how has your attitude to negative reviews changed over the past 15 years as you've you know, gone through further projects, including your, your gratitude project? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've definitely gotten positive and negative reviews. I've gotten slammed and slammed hard. And it in the beginning, it was even harder. It's still hard. It's still really an unpleasant feeling. I think I have gotten better. I think I've gotten a slightly thicker skin. And, and part of that is I think I've changed my philosophy a bit. You know, I do try to, when I'm envisioning a project, how will this affect the world? You know, will this help the world overall or will it harm the world overall? So knowing that if I get, you know, like I do think encouraging people to be more grateful and aware of all that goes into all the other people in their life, I think that's a positive message. So, you know, there were some snarky reviews and I'm, I'm you know, I'm like, well, that's that doesn't negate the fact that it's overall going to hopefully have a good effect. And also I've become very aware, of course, of the negative bias where you hear a hundred compliments and a single insult. And I think you know, we are wired to remember that insult because it did have evolutionary value mm -hmm. when you were on the savannah. You wanted to remember that one poisonous mushroom. But now it's just a terrible way to go through life and warping and defeating. So... Yeah, I, I don't want negative reviews, but I do feel I'm, I'm a little better equipped to handle them than I was. But please don't give a negative review to this podcast because it will crush me. <laughs> it will. <laughs> I will curl up into a fetal position. Okay, so talking about experimentation more broadly, mm. uh, do you think that other people should experiment more on themselves? My, my gut reaction is yes. And I'll, I'll tell you what I think are the advantages, and then I'll, I'll say a little about the possible perils. Great. But the advantages to me are, I think we are, have a tendency to just settle into ruts when experimenting could make us happier. And I'm not talking about like growing a beard and, and stoning adulterers. I'm talking more about small things in life, like trying a new toothpaste that might taste better, trying a new route to school, trying diff different strategies to get yourself to exercise. And I do think that's part of the EA DNA. Like we're very much about experimenting and seeing what works and to try things and see what works and then switch if it does. So I think overall, we should experiment more with our lives. I think that the dangers are that you can be too quick to abandon something because I do think some of the problems in the world are so technical that specialization is a good thing, like specialize in AI early so you can go as deep as possible to help prevent a possible existential disaster. But I'm very torn. I'm very torn. I don't know. You, you've thought about this. So I'd love your thoughts. What, how much should we experiment and in what ways? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say that one way that this comes up is in career choices. Mm -hmm. So exploring and exploiting career choices. So we've had a podcast about this, Brian Christian. So in terms of careers, it seems right that you should definitely experiment to some extent. You know, it's unlikely that the first 
you know, if you're in high school and you're deciding, oh, I want to major and I want to be a biologist and, or, you know, maybe you want to be an archaeologist, let's say, or maybe you, you want to be a painter or whatever it might be. And then you just go headfirst into that. And then that's just, just your job forever. Like that seems like it's probably a mistake. Rather, you should try and take these cheap tests if you can and try and find out, well, where are you a really good fit? We've been doing this anonymous advice series lately. And one of the pieces of advice was that people are too hesitant to abandon projects, actually, and certainly jobs. So you feel sort of a, a sort of a debt to a company for taking you on, something they train you up. But if you're not enjoying the work, if you don't feel like this is your perfect fit, then this person was saying, well, after about six months, you should probably be looking at an exit strategy. You should be willing to say that, well, for the greater good, you know, if you're trying to do the most good in the world, certainly if you're an effective altruist or if you have that kind of mindset, you shouldn't worry about, you know, wasting these people's times. Like everyone will be better off if you quit that job and find something where you're a better fit. But, you know, it still doesn't mean that it was a wasted bit of time. And there's this enormous value of information where you say like, okay, well, now I know that X job wasn't the right fit for me or even just these specific tasks. And that allows you to try and, you know, get more information about what this next job might be. And maybe even, you know, it's fantastic if you can talk to a lot of people in that field and get a sense for what their day-to-day lives are like. But at some point, you should find something and then commit to it. So right. it definitely isn't the case that you want to just be experimenting with these career choice decisions forever. But yeah, it's certainly an interesting It's an interesting a balance question. like everything else. And I have abandoned projects. And I will tell you, when you abandon a project that's not working... That is a great feeling. That's one of the best feelings. This was a, this is a question that was going to come up later. I was going to ask you, have you ever had a major project that you've begun and then abandoned? You know, let's say you started the year of living underwater and then, you know, you're in... <laughs> Writing that down You're in your scuba tank. You're, you know, you're building your underwater house and then, you know, two minutes in you think, you know what? Uh, I've made a huge mistake. Yeah. You know, was there, was there Absolutely. any, any moments like And it was this? very recent. I've had a few, but the most recent one was... I signed up to do a book called Fact-Checking My Life or Fact-Checking the World. And it was all about epistemology and what do we know and why do we know it? How do we know that the earth revolves around the sun? You know, how much can we trust our memory? And it was all tied to this fake news crisis. And I still think it's a fascinating topic and relevant. And maybe it would have done more good than my current puzzle book. But I was so miserable because for two reasons. One, a lot of it was very navel-gazing. So I was trying to figure out how much of my memory was true. So it would involve interviewing like all my ex-girlfriends and get their point of view. And that would have just been painful to (laughs) see. Because as I said, you know, I don't like my former self. And then the worry I had that actually kept me up at night is that I do think... You know, I am incredibly pro-science, but science has biases, corruption, mistakes. So if you dig in, it's a very subtle message. So be pro-science, but also be very skeptical of science. You've got the replication crisis. So I was worried that the takeaway was going to be people would read it and be like, oh, yeah, we can't trust anything. Hmm. You know, it's all it's all competing narratives. There is no truth because that's an easier takeaway. That's an easier story to sell than, yes, 
there is a truth, but we can only approach it probabilistically and we can only have models that are increasingly accurate. But and I think even you as a younger as a younger man was attracted to moral relativism. There you go. I was. Yeah. And this is epistemological epistemic relativism. But yeah, I think it's a dangerous. And so I thought maybe this book would do more harm than good. But on the other hand, I think it's a very important topic. And and I do I do love wrestling with this idea of you know, how do we know what we know and you know constantly questioning all of my beliefs. But it's also in this time I worry it's a dangerous message. Yeah. No, that makes sense. How far into the process did you get? I've been working on it for months, like 3 or 4 months. And I still have, you know, I wrote thousands of words about it. I, I hope to someday write articles or, or use it somehow. And it also clarified my thinking in a lot of ways. So financially, it was not good, but I do love what I learned from it. So in that sense, it was okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, yeah, the feeling of when I decided to abandon it, it was such a feeling of relief. It's relief. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that seems like a reasonable heuristic to have. I mean, if you're miserable, I mean, given given that you're, and I think you'll you'll be happy for me to say this, you've you've been so lucky to be able to stumble into this life where you get to do these incredible projects. You know, this would be the dream of so many people. Like, you shouldn't be spending a day of being miserable in one of your projects, really. Like, if you if you're spending months going like this, it's just not for me. You have the, you know, you you have the fortune to be able to just say, no, I don't want to do this. You know, I think ideally, if I were doing something that made me miserable, but that was going to improve, great for the world. then I should suck it up. Although even then, as we've discussed, if it made you too miserable, it might lead to you being less likely to do something that does good for the world in the future. Exactly. There you go. And ultimately, you might have less of a social impact with your career. I mean, I, I, because Will McCaskill has, we've talked about maybe I should do a book where I should try to be the most effective altruist Mm. and do the most good in the world. And I'm attracted to the idea. I'm also, I think I'm... I'm too much of a coward and a hypocrite to do it because I think to really do it, I would have to give away 99% of my money. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I might have to move to a developing country. Maybe not. I could make the argument I could do more good by writing instead of digging whales. But it it would radically change my life in a way that at this point I'm too scared to do. So I hope there's someone out there who's more courageous than me who would be willing to undertake being the most effective altruist in the world because I certainly would read that book. Yeah, that would be fascinating, actually. No, and I, and I think that's right. I think you, yeah, I mean, my philosophy is that you absolutely shouldn't be doing that sort of project if it would make you absolutely miserable. I think in your case, you wouldn't have to move to a development country because I think you have this status as a writer. You have people who, you know, whether you acknowledge it or not, who do respect you and will <laughs> pay attention to the podcasts and your books and will, and will be influenced. And I think you wouldn't need to be, you wouldn't need to be on the ground. Like, you know, you wouldn't be, need to be digging wells or anything. So I think probably you would have to focus all of your projects around, you know, these big ideas, which would be okay for you. But the big one is, yeah, you'd probably have to give up this beautiful apartment. That's uh, very true. No, so. I think about that all the time. Yeah. And yeah, that is the story I tell myself is that I could do better writing than I could anything else. 
So hopefully that's a true story. Yeah, and, and even then, I mean, I think obviously this, you know, this is a theme that runs through all of my stuff about not feeling guilty and things. But yeah, you just having an impact through your writing is enough. You know, you should never. I, I really, you know, want to stress this. You should never feel for a second guilty about the fact that you don't give away ninety nine percent of your money. Like if you give away any of your money and you dedicate any of your time to thinking about these important topics, that's fantastic. And if you're not the kind of person who's going to donate all your money, which almost no one is, that's fine. No one should feel guilty. No I one should. I think you're too nice to me, but I will take it. It makes me <laughs> thank you for relieving my guilt. Well, you know, maybe people will disagree. We'll get a lot of angry emails, <laughs> and people will say, "No, AJ should feel more guilty." Um, no, I do struggle with it, so it's there. It's there, people. Don't worry. Oh, I want to ask you: Have you read the Dice Man? I did. I loved that book. Okay. Wow. What a crazy book. It's one of my favorite novels. And so for anyone who hasn't read it or heard of it, it tells the story of a psychiatrist who makes all these major life decisions based on the casting of this dice. And uh, I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler, but things get dark pretty quickly. And so as much as I think an A.J. Jacobs version of The Dice Man would be fascinating reading, I think that's probably a step too far for your family's welfare's sake. (laughs) I think I wouldn't want to encourage you to do anything that extreme. But I did want to ask, I was curious, what are the most extreme ideas that you've seriously, sincerely considered taking on? First of all, just I love the idea of randomness and luck and and how much it plays a part in our lives. And this so Dice Man is a lot about that. I, I read about this. I forget the what this, but it's a political philosophy. I think it's called randomocracy, where instead of electing someone or... Oh, they're just chosen randomly? Randomly, like by lottery. Oh, wow. And, you know, it, the benefits would be there would be no campaign finance scandals you know we'd have a better president we statistically would, uh, statistically we would i know literally i've, I've heard the phrase cockocracy have you heard that word no. it's the rule by the worst possible person and i do think we've have a couple of those in the world right now including this country but anyway so to answer your question a lot of readers have suggested that I try to become the, the greatest lover in the world and like uh, do all the positions in the Kama Sutra. Okay. And I did bring it up with my wife and she quickly shot it down. <laughs> and I think wisely, first of all, I just don't think I'm too old. I don't have the flexibility for most of those. And two, I just don't, I wouldn't want to read that book. I don't think other people need to. So there is that one. One thing I thought of when I read Peter Singer is the idea that there's a geographical distance, and that's a pretty arbitrary reason not Mm -hmm. to act on something. So what if technologically I could reduce that geographic distance to nothing? So I would have, say, a live feed of someone in a developing country and what their life is like. So every time I walked into Starbucks, I would have in my face the two choices. I could spend $3 on a Frappuccino or I could spend $3 helping this person eat. And I really did give some thought to that. In the end, I decided not to. I thought it would be too flippant. It's too flippant Mm. a way to address this moral issue. Maybe it's cowardice as well <laughs> that I didn't do it. Yeah, but, I, I suppose you would have the same dilemma as the radical effective altruist. You yeah, would, you would have to give you would, every you would just single decision. Yeah. yeah, until their lives were at a point where they no longer needed your help. Right. 
how could you not? But yeah, and I, and I also think, you know, I'm not sure it would be received well. Like, you know, there would be like white savior criticisms. Sure. So I decided not to, but I, I think it's a very interesting idea, not necessarily for an article, but just for a way of life. Like, no, that is interesting. How can we make this geographic distance disappear so that our decisions are more rational? Are there any favorite stories from your experiments that, for whatever reason, didn't make it into any of your books? Well, I will say sometimes what would make a good story, I felt, is a little bit of a cheap shot. So when I was doing The Year of Living Biblically, I went to a place called the Holy Land Experience in Orlando, Florida. And this is a Disney World version, but religious. So instead of Mickey Mouse, you have Jesus. And Jesus is in a robe. He's got a little head microphone, and he's crucified every two or three hours. And they have actors playing lepers on the street asking for, for your money. And you know, it was very it was surreal and entertaining and interesting. But I also thought, you know, this is a cheap shot. This is taking the, the worst of the evangelical community mm. and just making fun of them. And does it really improve my book? So I never ended up writing it. But... I'll never forget it. I'll never forget my my Holy Land experience. <laughs> so let's move on to your thoughts on doing good. Can you tell us how you first got introduced to effective altruism? Sure. I pitched an article idea to Esquire magazine, and the idea was if I took my writing fee or a couple thousand dollars, what would be the most good I could do with that amount of money? And through the research, naturally, I ended up reading a lot of Will's book, Doing Good Better, mm -hmm. I believe, and Peter Singer. And I found their arguments incredibly compelling. So I ended up in the end, I think I did donate most, I did donate some to a GiveWell charity. I think what, a malaria, the... Against Malaria Foundation. I'm against Malaria Foundation. But I also thought that donating to effective altruism itself was an effective way. It's a meta charity. So if it works, you know, $1 to effective altruism is, has a multiplier effect. And, you know, that... To the Senate for Effective Altruism? To I CEA? believe I did it. I did it to CEA. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the idea was, you know, they, they are spreading the word that people should give more and should give more efficiently. I mean, at one point I thought... Maybe the best use of that couple thousand dollars would be to hire a publicist who would get me on the Today Show mm -hmm. so I could talk about effective altruism. But I also thought the optics of that are not great. Like <laughs> spending all my money to hire a publicist does not look like it's doing the most good, even though you could make an argument it is. Um, I think you could make that argument. Yeah, you've got to, well, if you really take these ideas seriously, you've got to maybe put away the concerns about optics and say, what does the most good? There you go. From now on, I'm going to put all my money into hiring publicists. I sincerely think that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, not necessarily publicists, but going on the Today Show, that would have been incredible. Yeah, it would have been huge. Yeah. Uh, but who knows if that would have even happened? Probably not. But anyway, I loved it. And I liked the article because I went through all of the arguments against effective altruism and got the responses from smart people like Will and Peter Singer, because, you know, there are compelling arguments against it, but I still, in the end, come down on the side of effective altruism. Would you say that you were immediately drawn to these ideas, or did you take some convincing? 
I think I've been a utilitarian for a long time. I don't know if I had the right words or, you know, I, I didn't have the vocabulary to express it and maybe I still don't, but I am very much in that mindset of how can we do the most good for the most people without, you know, cutting someone up for their body parts. Mm -hmm. It's a rule utilitarianism yes. is a fine thing. But yeah, I so it didn't take a huge amount of convincing. I was already leaning that way. But I loved the rigor of the thought that these people had put into it and and also just the research on where specifically that money should go. So so I, and then after that I wrote the article, but I was, and I was invited to speak at the Effective Altruism Global Conference in San Francisco a few years ago. And I just, I loved meeting people in the community. And I loved the diversity of the thought. You know, you've got the people, the sort of the animal, compassion for animals, factory farming. You've got developing nations. And then you've got this part, which I, Definitely had not given a lot of thought to, but the existential risk people. So I loved being exposed to the diversity of, I think it's a strength and a weakness of EA. But overall, I think it's a strength that you've got so many different viewpoints on how to do good. Normally, we might talk about, well, I mean, I'm going to ask you what your biggest concerns are with effective altruism, but uh, we rarely get someone to speak just openly about the positives of the EA community. So I was wondering if you wanted to say a little bit about what do you think are the good things about this community and you know, what, what would you be excited about telling people? Well, I, I love talking about it. And I mean, I think the strength is everyone I've met in the EA community is so thoughtful and, you know, they are trying to do good in the best way possible like that alone is astounding as opposed to a worldview that it's a jungle and you're only out for yourself and i would say when i talk about the ea community i've learned some lessons because sometimes i get so excited about some of the more unusual ideas like ai risks or wild animal suffering mm -hmm. i mean as such to me a really compelling idea but I find if you start, like don't, if someone knows nothing about effective altruism, I mean, you'd start by telling them, well, they're trying to do the most good possible and, and think outside the box and, you know, maybe we should engineer it so they're no carnivores. And they just look at you blankly. They'll walk away. They're not engaged. It's just too crazy. So I've learned to start just with the, the least controversial, which is this is a group of people trying to do the most good. Mm -hmm. That's hard to argue with. Seems good. That seems good. And then I do think to get people into, you know, if you know nothing about it, talking about development and, and poverty is probably the most effective way. Because mm -hmm. uh, that was my journey. You know, I was I was brought in thinking about, you know, how can we make a more fair world where there's not a billion people starving. And then that broadened my circle of moral concern to that. And then uh, that broadened to, you know, non-human animals. Then that broadened to future people, maybe even, you know, non-carbon based life. But it took a while like that progression took a while. So I've learned to really hold back from pitching what I find the most interesting ideas mm -hmm. to the ones that I think will engage people and not dismiss the movement as a bunch of lunatics, like paranoid lunatics. That seems very sensible. 
Do you ever talk about effective altruism to friends and family who have never heard about it? And how do they tend to react? Yeah, I've, again, I've learned to start with the more relatable premises. Mm-hmm. And I do pitch, there's a meeting every year where all of my in-laws, and there are about 20 of them, and we take a vote on what charity to give oh. to. And I've brought up effective altruism or EA-related causes I got to say, I'm, I'm not doing a great job. And because it, the other challenge is, I think, you know, people are so swayed by emotions mm. and EA is a little bit more intellectual. So, you know, the, the charities that have that have won the votes within the family are are very emotional ones, you know, helping refugees and immigration because we're Jews and we were once refugees and immigrated. And, you know, it's hard to argue that that's a good cause, but it's also very hard to argue against Mm. because it emotionally resonates. So, yeah, I got to figure out that's one of my big challenges when talking about EA is how do you properly harness emotions? Because the EA logo, I think, is awesome. Mm. I'm a big fan of the logo, the the light bulb with a heart inside. So it's, you know, the ideas and the compassion, the, the mind and the emotions. But I don't think I've been successful in tapping into the emotions. Have you tried Will's thought experiment of, you know, imagine that you had the opportunity to run in to a burning building and rescue a child, you know, you have that opportunity with X thousands of dollars and that this is a chance for you to be a hero. Have you pitched that to your family? I'm not Friends? in so many words. So, all right, that's for next. It just passed. So <laughs> I'm screwed for this year. But yeah, no, I think that's good. And I think there are ways to do it. And that is one thing and I wanted to talk about with you is like, what strategies can we use to make it more, more compelling, the, mm-hmm. the idea of EA? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right that introducing them to wild animal suffering as a first off is not gonna <laughs> that's not gonna win the vote. No, well, I'm I'm sure you've read those studies more than I have, but about how people are more likely to give to a single person yes. that they see a video about than to a, you know thousands of people because I guess it's overwhelming and our brains are wired for stories. And I think this is I have mixed feelings about this. One, you know is we should fight this, you know, that's part of human nature, but not all parts of human nature are good. So we should not give into this and we should try to encourage people to think more statistically. On the other hand, maybe it's so deeply built in that we should play to it. Mm. We should take advantage of that quirk in our thinking. And the key would be to align the stories with the bigger problems. So, you know, you can tell a story about a girl who fell into a well but, you know, there are three kids who fall into wells or whatever, but it's a very compelling story. But align the stories with, you know, tell the story of one of the 2,000 people a day who die from malaria. Tell that story and make it vivid as opposed to telling the story of a shark attack, which is also very vivid but happens so rarely. Yeah, no, that's true. I've also been thinking lately, so we're in New York, and on the weekend, there was an event which I had never heard of before, SantaCon. Yes, (laughs) Never heard of it in my life. My girlfriend and I were just walking the streets, everyone was dressed as Santa around us, and I 
didn't know what was happening. There's just like a couple of people were first, we were out in the morning, <laughs> and then suddenly it just became, you know, every second person, and suddenly it was everyone on the street around us. We're in the East Village, so we're just surrounded by it. That's Anticon Central. And right? then, you know, we went home and we Googled it and we found out what was going on. I'm like, okay, yeah, we understand it's, you know, it's this big event. But people were just talking about this and saying like, oh, well, you know, it's good because we're raising money for charity. And they weren't even specific. They weren't even saying what they were raising it for. It's just, well, it's for charity. And I think there are so many things like that where people are just invested in this cause. They want to have fun too, but they're just excited about the idea of charity just generally. And I wonder if we could do more to try and speak to like the organizers of events like this who are just raising decent amounts of money and just get people who don't really necessarily care that much about where the money to go and just divert it to these most effective causes. So I if, love that if you knew someone who was running SantaCon, keep SantaCon going by all means, but just have it being raising money for AMF. That seems right. good. And it seems like there's probably so many causes, like, you know, the ice bucket challenge was right. ridiculous, but like no one doing that was thinking like, oh, I really care about ALS. Like, that's what I'm really passionate about. No, they wanted to, you know, be part of this social phenomenon. There's no reason in principle why you couldn't divert these things to effective altruist themed charities. And yeah, I wonder if we could do more work there and whether anyone would actually really be bothered because they could still say, I'm doing this for charity. I'm doing this for kids in Africa. I love that. And in fact, there are a couple of people I met at EAG who started this app called Momentum, mm. which I, I think it's a great idea. And it's basically trying to get people to donate more to charity. But I think they do guide them to EA charities. And the idea is that you tie your donations to an event. So, for instance, every time Donald Trump tweets I automatically donate 50 cents to a pro get out the vote democracy mm -hmm. organization. So it sort of like gamifies yeah. charity, which I think is fine. I love your idea because I'm not doing that because I'm obsessed with the charity. I'm doing it because, well, in my case, I am, you know, very interested in democracy reforms. But it's mostly a fun game that I can tell people. Yeah. Every time Trump tweets you know, it, it, and it makes me feel a tiny bit better. Uh, yeah, and 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 not to not to say that you ought not to be donating to that cause, but you could also you could do the same thing for a long termist charity. You could do the same thing for saying like, well, I think that Donald Trump is increasing existential risk, so I'm going to donate to a charity that works to prevent nuclear war or something like that. Which Still is works totally. It's, it's both true, true, and, exactly. <laughs> and you know the 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 game still works. You know, right. Well, that's, I mean, sometimes when I talk about EA, I say it is the opposite of Trump because he has no concept of long term. Yeah. And he is all about moment to moment gratification. Like if he did the marshmallow test, he would just be like <laughs> gobbling it up and God knows what. So that's probably pretty good marketing for us. The opposite of Donald Trump. <laughs> I think that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've talked about this on other episodes. Do you want to align with a particular political party? And, you know, there are dangers in that. But yeah, to me, it seems this goes beyond political party. Agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts on how these ideas could better appeal to a broader range of talented folks? I think it's a good question. I think you guys are probably better at it than I am. I mean, one thing I've done, I've written a few EA-related articles, mm -hmm. and I do try this bait-and-switch method, which A, is a speciesist term, and uh, <laughs> B, has its downsides. But I think that it's overall good. 
So for instance, I wrote an article, Leah Garces wrote a book called Grilled, and it's about how she was able to convince the poultry industry mm -hmm. to make reforms so the chickens aren't suffering enough. And the intro I used was something like, you know, Leah Garces has been obsessed with dogs all her life. She has devoted herself to trying to relieve the suffering of, of millions of dogs and has been successful. And then I had the little twist, which was, wait, wait, did I say dogs? I meant chickens. She loves chickens. But maybe we should afford chickens the same amount of moral concern that we afford dogs because they too can feel pain. So my hope was that that would draw people in and actually make them think, you know what, why do we treat dogs and chickens so radically differently? And then they might be more likely to engage in the article. Yeah, that's fantastic. No, I love that. Oh, so I wanted to ask you, we spoke earlier that you didn't have the nicest things to say about your former self. Um, <laughs> what, what about what about 25-year-old AJ? Do you think that effective altruism would have appealed to him? And you know, what would have been the best way of presenting these ideas to your younger self? I think, no, I think, as I say, I am not a fan of my former self. I did not think about others. But I think the best way to pitch it to my younger self would have been the fact that doing good for others makes you feel better. Mm. I mean, it's one of the great delightful paradoxes and coincidences of human nature that we are happiest when we are helping others. And, you know, that's the way I found to get out of depression. So if I drove that home, like appealing to my selfish side and say, listen, you're very unhappy. Try going outside of yourself and thinking of others, thinking of the long-term future, thinking of humanity, maybe you'll be happier. You know, just experiment with it. Who knows? You know, just try it for a month. That might have made some headway. So yeah, appealing to my selfish desires. Do you think once you were committed to just doing something for others, so that, that could be charity generally, right. do you think once you're committed to giving away something to charity or to donating some of your time, do you think you then could have been convinced to work on effective altruist type causes or do you think you would have been more tied to more traditional charities? I think I would have bought the effective altruist reasoning. Sure. In the beginning, I would probably do something related. You know, my, my grandfather had Alzheimer's, so I mm. should do something Alzheimer's related. But I think if I could convince myself that just because someone is related by accident of DNA, maybe that's not the best reason to focus on that. But I don't know. I, I don't trust my former self. <laughs> Given that you felt like, you know, you don't trust your former self, you're not a big fan, do you think that if we had the opportunity, let's say that he existed today, do you think he would have been someone who we want in the community? Would we even have wanted that arrogant jerk? Or, <laughs> you know, do, is it better to allow, potentially allow people time to mature and to develop their ideas a little bit more? And now, you know, you could be, you know, an enormous help for effective altruism. But if we had, if, you know, approached you at that age, like maybe you would have been turned off by these ideas and then you would have had, you know, bad associations. So like, do you think there's anything to the idea of being careful about getting people when they're too young interested in, in these I, ideas? It is fast. First of all, I have indoctrinated my kids into it. So I am oh. definitely going with the root of, and you know, and one of my sons is like fully on board with effective altruism, which I love. Yeah, it's, it's such a it's such a interesting dynamic because on the one hand, 
if you get people young enough, you know, to introduce these ideas, it really is in their deep in their core. On the other hand, I feel like, you know, as I aged, I became more open to these ideas. But I worry it could have just as easily been the other way. I could have hardened mm. my ideas and your, your worldview hardens and it's very hard to change it. So I don't know the answer is basically I'm going to plead epistemic humility and say I don't know. I do think teaching him very young is a good idea. And I do think, you know, I think a lot about the education system. And if I were going to change anything, I would teach a lot more epistemology, like how do we know what we know, and also teach a lot more, you know, looking rationally at how does this action affect the world. So yeah, get it into the school curriculum. Well, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> While we talked about this earlier, have you considered taking on any other bigger effective altruism theme writing projects yourself? Have you considered, well, have you considered taking on anything beyond Will's idea of the radical? Yeah, altruism? no, actually, I have a couple. One, I'm friends with Spencer Greenberg, mm -hmm. former guest on your podcast. Absolutely. And he had this great thought experiment that he says he tries to do when he wakes up in the morning, which is that it's just by pure luck that you are who you are. The odds are just as equal that you would be any one of the other seven and a half billion people on Earth. So he tries to imagine every morning, what if he was born a papaya farmer in the Philippines or, or a taxi driver in Ecuador? What would his life be like then? So we, we thought maybe this would be an interesting app or an email, a daily email, sort of life roulette. And you would get it and it would randomly choose from hundreds of other lives and say, here's what you are today. I love that. Yeah, I think it's a lovely idea. I like, the, again, the whole idea is trying to expand your circle of moral concern. You know, the downsides are maybe people would say it's sort of trivializing. But overall, I think it's it's a nice idea. We never did anything. We, we sort of started, but if anyone, if it appeals to anyone, we would gladly donate it oh, if wonderful. anyone wants to follow up. Oh, I once I talked to Will about an idea called the Reality Times, because I think that the media is one of the major hurdles to doing more good, because it is just one big availability bias. You know, it is you read about the two people who are eaten by sharks as opposed to a what's really killing people and b that life is getting better in many ways. So this would be the reality times. I mean, you could go a couple different ways. One would be like, instead of, you could have an article on this person was eaten by a shark, but then you contextualize it, have a little box saying, and here are the number of people yesterday who died of heart disease, uh, of malnutrition, whatever. So you give that, or you could say, you know, five people died in a private jet crash, and then you have a box that says, and here were 400 million people, whatever it is, you know, landed safely in this flying machine. Like, can you believe that? That is remarkable. <laughs> so it's sort of along the lines of Steven Pinker's argument that if you just had one newspaper come out every 50 years, yep. it would all be amazing. You know, humans landed on the moon. They you know, they cured polio. It's like crazy. So it would be trying to get that long view in there 
into everyday news. That's fantastic. Have, have you actually made any uh, Not, progress on this? No progress. No progress. Whatsoever. But I, again, I'm happy to... Are you happy for other people in the community? Of course. And I'm okay. helping any way I can. Oh, and one last idea I had that's sort of EA adjacent is I want to be a utilitarian movie reviewer <laughs> uh, because I feel that, you know, there's this bias for deontology in movies. For instance, The Martian with Matt Damon... Like, you could make a very good argument. He is one of the great villains of history, if he were real. You know, he it must have cost billions and billions of dollars to rescue him. So a true hero would have said, <laughs> listen, I'm fine. I lived a good life. Don't rescue me. Use those billions of dollars to do something good, you know, whether it's bed nets or long-term future. So he was an example of, like, the worst decision-making. But that's, I think... It's just symptomatic of a lot of movies where you have this idea that saving one person is the greatest feat. Are there any movies that do this well? Well, the one that I do think of that is uh, Casablanca is a okay. very utilitarian movie because he basically gave up his happiness sure. for the betterment of the world. He said, oh, spoiler alert. Sorry if you yeah, haven't seen sorry. it. Uh, that was 1942. Is that? <laughs> it's been a couple. Maybe it's, it's a wonderful little, film, though. We, uh, we recommend it. Well, yeah. And from a EA point of view, it's great. He's like a true hero that he sacrificed his personal happiness and, and, and that's his true. love of his life so that she could do good and accompany this guy who was... Uh, that's a great example. And yeah. also you could point to it for saying, like if anyone said like well this isn't going to play you say Casablanca there you go exactly Often voted the best movie of all time so yeah that was it that's the those are the EA related ideas I have Fantastic. but have not executed on well I love that so one of the key ideas of 80,000 hours is long-termism that in expectation there'll be a huge number of future generations and because we think future generations clearly matter then what's most important about our actions is their potential effects on these future generations so if this reasoning is correct it implies that approaches to improving the world should be evaluated mainly in terms of their potential long-term impact over thousands millions or even billions of years so in other words the question how can i have a positive impact should mostly be replaced with how can i best make the very long-term future go better. So my question for you, AJ, is have you bought into the arguments for long-termism? I have bought into the arguments for long-termism. I think it's a great, a great way to see the world. This idea has been around a little bit. There's the Native American saying that I love seven generations, which you should, every action you should think about how it affects the seventh generation. But long-termism is like the 70th generation, the 700,000th generation. So I love that. Also, I'm embarrassed by the way I know the Native American saying is because it's a brand of eco-friendly diapers. So <laughs> it's not like I'm an intellectual student of Native Americans. But anyway, I love the idea. I think it's a challenging idea because it's so abstract. I mean, you can see someone, you can see pictures of someone who's geographically distant, but how do you get a picture of someone who's so far away in time? So it's, it's a challenge to get across, but intellectually, it definitely makes sense. Was there anything, beyond it being obviously so abstract, was there anything specific that made you resistant to these ideas? Could we have got you in, you know, interested in long-termism earlier if we had, you know, if the, these ideas had been framed a different way? Maybe. I mean, I think, and you and I have talked about this when we met, like, how do you get the idea across in a sort of a visceral way? And you and I talked about 
movies or stories. How do you tell a story about someone in the far future? I don't have an answer. I don't have a, a good story, but I love your idea about setting something. So instead of attacking it head on, that you set a show or a movie or a book within a long-termist group like like you know basically the office but instead of making paper they do yay mm-hmm. they do long term so i you can explain it better <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah sure so i think that the best way if we were going to create good long termist fiction is to create an independently great show so it could be it could be a comedy it could be like the office but you happen to work at a give or something and you keep the effect of altruism stuff you know pretty subtle i was thinking more along the lines of a drama so i was thinking something along the lines of a mad men but instead of advertising they happen to work at a long termist org so you know when watching mad men you learn about the best techniques for making an ad successful you know you start to understand the dynamics between the you know the beans team and the ketchup team at heinz but ultimately you know it's a show about these these characters and if you love that show if you love mad men and you loved or at least you were intrigued by these characters maybe you'd start to get interested in these effective altruism ideas that they were always going on about at work well i love that idea i think that is the best cuz yeah if you go about it too head on it might turn people off but i do like that idea i think as I mentioned earlier, I have very conflicted feelings towards stories because I do think what makes a good story is often not only untrue, but at odds with the truth. So like a good story is a zero-sum game where the good guys beat the bad guys, whereas in reality, you can often have both sides winning. A good story is like a revelation where everything turns around, whereas in reality, often incremental steps towards progress are, are the best way. And also individualism, like a good story is not about, you know, 40 people working together on the committee. It's about like the one maverick who makes everything happen. So I have very mixed feelings about stories, but I do think they're super powerful. And so if you can align the stories with reality and the real problems, then it's uh, a really effective tool. Like like 1984, which my kids are reading now. I mean, that is... That drives home the dangers of an authoritarian state. In or, such, or Animal Farm. Animal Farm, another great one. So, you know, the danger is you can all, there's also like, you know, white supremacist fiction that tells a very compelling story. You know, I think Steve Bannon was very influenced by a white supremacist novel. So the danger is, since it's not based on evidence, you can take fiction to promote whatever cause you want. But use it for long-termism. That would be awesome. And I think your idea, I can't come up with a better idea. I am not even going to try. The setting something in like a future of humanity, but as a drama, and like you get to see the lives of these people. Hopefully most of them are good. Uh, (laughs) You don't want like the villains. But uh, that, I think, would go a long way. Okay, yeah. So there's a serious problem with long-termism, which is that you've got to try and get people to buy into this idea and it's so abstract. So that brings me to It's All Relative, Ventures Up and Down the World's Family Tree, which you've released in 2017. 
And just for those in the audience who haven't read it, could you give a brief overview of what that book was about? Sure. This was, uh, I got a very strange email a few years ago from a guy who said, you don't know me, but I'm your 12th cousin and here's how. And I thought he was, of course, going to ask me to wire $10,000 to Nigeria, but it turned out he was legitimate and he's part of this group of researchers and scientists who are trying to build what they call a global family tree. So to prove that every human on Earth is related and how. And now that we have tools like DNA and the Internet where you can build multiple family trees and combine them, almost like Wikipedia for family trees. So there is this global family tree now with I think it's about 150, 200 million people on it. And it's amazing. It just blew my mind. And you can see how you're related to all these people Almost anyone on, you know, uh, you can put in Barack Obama, my relation to Barack Obama. The one I know is through marriage, but it is officially he is my wife's fifth great aunt's husband's brother's wife, seventh great nephew. Something like, I think that's right, but it's very close to that. And I loved this idea just because it makes it so clear that this cliche we were told as kids that humankind is one big family. Like now it's concrete. Like now you can actually see it and it, and it hits you on a more gut level. So I thought this would be an interesting book. And that was sort of the thesis is, can we use this new technology to, again, widen our circle of moral concern so we see everyone as family? And there is, there is a little bit of evidence that it might be effective. There's the anecdotal evidence, like from me, for instance, there's this TV personality named Judge Judy. Mm -hmm. And I always hated Judge Judy because she's so shrill and abrasive. But then I found out she's my seventh cousin. And I'm like, you know what? She's not so bad. <laughs> so it's not rational. But taking this bias towards family and hijacking it to broaden it to everyone, it could be effective. There was one study, maybe more. It was a Harvard study where they took Israelis and Palestinians. And in one group, they showed them how they were related genetically. And in the other, they didn't. And the ones who were genetically related were more open to negotiation, more, more compassionate. You know, as we know with the replication crisis, it's good to be a little skeptical, mm -hmm. but it was a nice start. So that is my hope that seeing the world as one big family would help us with our compassion. And, and likewise, it leads right into long-termism because, you know, you want to ensure not just your kids or your nieces and nephews, but your like, you know, 14th grade nephews. Let's, let's try to think about them. One of the key takeaways is the benefit of thinking of yourself as part of something bigger. Do you have any favorite historical stories that emphasize this idea? Well, one I talked about, I think in my book on, I think it was in my gratitude book, where, and it's apparently not apocryphal, I looked into it, but JFK, when he was president, took a tour of the NASA headquarters. So he met with the scientists and the astronauts, but he was walking down the hall and he saw a janitor and said, what do you do? And the janitor said, Mr. President, I am helping to put a man on the moon. And I thought that was lovely because he was able to have the big picture because it's true. If, you know, if, if an astronaut slips on the hall because there's a spill and breaks his neck, he's not going to go to the moon. So 
being part of something larger was lovely. Now, of course, this has its downsides because the people in the Nuremberg rallies were part sure. of something bigger. So you got to make sure that what you're part of is something good. But I, I do feel that this book, It's All Relative, also helped me feel like I'm part of something bigger like this. You know, trying to expand the tribe to encompass everyone. Mm. And one scientist named George Church said, he's a biologist, and he told me, you know, the easiest way to get people to cohere is a common enemy. So maybe the secret is something like Watchmen, the movie where, you know, a threat of alien invasion will bring us all together. I mean, my hope is that we can make climate change our common enemy, like somehow make that very much personalize it. So it's like an evil villain and we're all working together to stop it. I don't know if that's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that people need to see faces or stories or could this idea of, you know, literally everyone is connected, could that start to really mean something moving forward into the future? Could it be an abstract idea or do we need to really make it concrete for people? I think naturally the more concrete, the better. Mm -hmm. So even something like seeing on a chart how I was related yeah. to someone I didn't like just seeing the lines and the pictures that of the people that connect us there was something about that that uh, that triggered this compassion or, yeah. or so you know i wish it weren't the case it would be nice if we could just abstractly embrace everyone but i think we are wired to so the more visual the better uh, and there, I went to, uh, with my family, we went on a trip to Japan and there was, we went to the science museum there and they had an interesting exhibit where they had letters from the future. And it was, you put in some information about yourself and then they had an algorithm that would generate these letters, you know, saying, dear AJ, this is, you know, 14th great grandson. Here's what life is like. And, you know, basically sort of maybe try to do better so that my life is better. Life isn't uh, great. Yeah. <laughs> and you could shoot, they would sort of randomly select these mm. horrible scenarios yeah, in the future. I thought it was interesting. I don't know how effective it is for other people, but I was like, I like that. I like uh, trying to make it as real as possible. Yeah. But these people are real because... Yeah, it's it's hard there. You can't see them. You can't see it. Yeah. So so I know you have mixed feelings about this, but do you think overall the effect of altruism community should be more focused on storytelling? Well, as you say, very mixed emotions. Yeah. I think as long as the stories align perfectly with reality and what our real problems are, then that's good. So yes, I guess. Uh, oh, you're skeptical that we can actually do that. I'm skeptical because sure. it can go like it can just, you know go so seriously wrong because it's so easy to tell a story about some, the one person who was killed by sharks. So, yes, overall, I think it's a good idea. And I, I mean, I try to do that. I think, for instance, Leah Garces, her book about relieving animal suffering, the way she told it was very personal story of her battle like and her relationship with these big poultry farms. So it became like a story you wanted to follow. How did she, how did she make a, an alliance with the head of 
Purdue chickens. And she tells you, and again, it's very personal. It's like they started talking about their kids and, you know, the various challenges of being a parent. Hmm. And so they found one little, little bit that they had in common. And from that, they were able to, you know, build out. And she was able to make real substantial change to these chickens' lives. So that, I thought, was an excellent example of using a story for good. Yeah. No, I was just thinking, presumably, you could do the same thing with a long-termist cause. You could, for example, you could write a similar book about climate change and about trying to deal with different, you know, organizations or governments, and you could still have it be, you know, delivered through this lens of a personal story, but just happen to have this cause differ. Do you think that's... I love that idea. Yeah. I mean, I think... And wrestling, being open about wrestling with your doubts and how do you, when you're talking to climate change deniers, how can you say with certainty that this is happening when yeah. everything is probabilistic, but you know, how important it is nonetheless to act on it now. So telling that story from a very personal, I like that. I'm in. All right. Beautiful. So right. we're solving the world one topic at a time. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so you're also involved in the world's journalism, which we've talked about a few times on the podcast. Robert said on the show that he feels like the media has mostly gotten worse, that the sharper competition between outlets has led to a degradation in quality, and that the transfer of discussions to the internet seems to have mostly made things worse. Do you tend to agree with Rob here, or do you have different views on the current state of journalism? I agree. Overall, it's gotten worse. It's just terrible. And we've talked about it, so I won't repeat. But there are bright spots. And your former guest, Kelsey Piper and uh, Dylan Matthews are doing a van. I'm just really huge fans of what they're doing. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's not all bleak. It's pretty bleak. But uh, I mean, I would love to see more EAs in journalism because I think you can make a huge difference. I know that you had some concerns about, given that it might be a, at least a shrinking industry, would you have some reservations about sending talented, you know, 20-year-old EAs into the world of journalism? I definitely do. I mean, I feel guilty because there is a, a very good chance you won't get a job or you'll get a job and you'll be fired because it's a shrinking industry. But I also think that it's incredibly important because... You know, information is so powerful and getting the EA point of view out and writing about big causes as opposed to following every little dip and every little twist and turn of daily politics is it's necessary. I think it's good. I want some people to be obsessed with it. But I also, Rob wrote on Facebook, you know, he has a policy of not reading about terrorist right. attacks. And I have adopted that. I'm like, you know what? That's true. I'm not learning anything. I'll read at the end of the year the total number of people, you know, terrible attacks. But just reading about it every day, it's time consuming. It's dispiriting. So I'd rather devote my time to reading articles that Dylan or Kelsey would write. Solutions journalism is there's something called solutions based journalism, where instead of writing about you know, how horrible things are. You write how horrible things are. Here are three solutions, you know, which is going to work best. I like that. I mean, it's a challenge because I think, unfortunately, human beings are wired to love, and I am too, like, you know, love just the worst, you know, 
<laughs> we just love to read about our, you know, our Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, I think, is one of the worst emotions mm. ever, and I try not to experience it, but but I certainly do. Anyway, I hope that more EAs will go into journalism because we need them. We need them in the area. But please proceed with caution. <laughs> <laughs> So, as you mentioned, you know, Vox has created this vertical focused on uh, effective altruism topics called Future Perfect. And one of our previous guests, Kelsey, Kelsey Piper, who was on episode 53, is responsible for some great work there. The BBC has also started to publish work on the long-term future, featuring articles from people like Anders Sandberg, who was another great previous guest. He was on episodes 29 and 33. I was wondering, what do you think of the idea of trying to start new effective altruism-focused verticals in major outlets? So... How valuable would it be to see these topics being discussed in the New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic? I would love it. Are you kidding? I mean, I don't know. I'm not in a position where I know whether it's going to make them a lot of money, but I certainly hope so. And I will say, I showed you this right before we started taping. I sometimes blurb books, so I write like a little positive comment, and mm-hmm. I've sent books before they and they put them on the back cover. So I, for the listeners, AJ is holding this book. I'm holding a book, and it's called How to Live a Good Life, and it's this book I was sent, and I did blurb, and it's basically a 12 or 13 grand philosophies of life, including Buddhism, and Judaism, and one of those 12 is effective altruism. Amazing. I love it. So it's right up there with Judaism and Buddhism and Epicurean. It's, so that, to me, was such an exciting thing to see. And Kelsey Piper. And was Kelsey? Yep. She wrote the chapter. It's an excellent chapter. So that, to me, was like, wow, you guys really are making some amazing inroads. You know, that, yeah, that's, that's a nice stamp of approval. So... Yeah, I, I'm mildly optimistic about more effective altruism in the media. And do you think if it happened, it would be, you know, I mean, it's obviously hard to quantify, but do you think that it would be very valuable to have this content? In super, the, super yeah. valuable. Okay. I mean, so and would, I, and would, you, I, would you be happy for some of the more talented people in, in the community to be out and just, all right, they work at the New York Times now. You know, they were working. Oh, be huge. They were working at, you know, let's say an effective altruism organization, but now they're at the New York Times. Like, would you say that, that is something that you'd be excited about? Very excited. Okay. I think that that could have a huge impact. You know, and not just in all media. So, like you said, I want a, I want a TV show. I want an effective altruism TV show. You know, and I try my part. I'm going to, I pledge right here to write more effective altruism related articles. Beautiful. What about starting new effective altruism focused verticals in conservative outlets? So, how valuable do you think this kind of work would be in places like the Wall Street Journal, or the National Review, places like this? That's a tough one. I don't know the answer. I'm going to plead epistemic humility. But I guess one thing is a lot of these are about the preservation of humanity. Mm-hmm. Now, there which are, seems very conservative. Which seems conservative. Yeah. Exactly. Conserving human life. I mean, there is a, a section of the, the right wing, and I met them during the year of <laughs> living enough. biblically, that does not care about the future of humanity because... And actively want to bring about the end times. They're right. Exactly. So they don't care about the environment. But but from what I can tell, originally, for instance, environmentalism was not a partisan issue Mm. and that it was bipartisan. Some people blame Al Gore for politicizing it. I don't know how true that is, Mm. but I've heard that several times that he... (laughs) 
<laughs> he has done more damage by making it a democratic cause. But I think that talking to Christians, there's, there's this idea of stewardship of the earth. God has given us earth and we have to be its stewards. So that can line up with environmentalism. I imagine they would want to be, conservatives want to be very careful with AI because they don't. Of course. I think they would privilege humans over non-carbon-based yeah, life. Yeah, and they, and they wouldn't want to see this kind of extraordinary rapid change. Right. There you go. They'd be a little more conservative. So, yeah, I think there's, there's room for that if you angle it in the right way. So moving on to uh, a little bit about writing careers now. For talented young writers who mostly care about the long-term future, do you have any thoughts about their best career paths? Well, again, I, I want more EAs in journalism. Uh, it's a dangerous path, but it would be great. Luckily, I think in this world, you have a lot more outlets. They're not necessarily going to pay you a lot, but, but blogs or even something on like LinkedIn or Medium just gives you an opportunity to write. And to me, writing is a, a, a great way to clarify your thinking regardless of even if it's published. So I I think in general, putting things into words, I do have this habit that of talking to myself and trying to like work out, like I'll listen to an 80,000 hours podcast and I'll like argue with myself out loud while I'm walking my dog, you know, here's what I think of that, but maybe this. And it just, it allows you to have more clarity when you hear the words. So... I am all for writing, even if you don't publish it. I'm all for writing, even if you don't have a big readership. Do you talk to yourself around the house as well, or is it just when you're walking the dog? Because I noticed that I used to live alone for a couple of years, and I would talk to myself constantly. And then I moved in with you know my girlfriend, and then suddenly like that just goes away because it's like, well, this is too weird. And now I've found that when I'm in the house alone, I don't talk to myself oh, no. anymore. I think you should start again. I'm uh, a big I, fan. I believe it. I mean, luckily... My wife talks to herself, so she doesn't think it's weird. Makes like, it she definitely has conversations. And, and the other advantage is, you know, we live in the, a world where people have Bluetooth microphones. So when you're talking to yourself on the street... You don't look not, crazy. You don't look necessarily crazy. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. That is one of the life hacks that I, I recommend most, talking to yourself. How can a talented writer best realize that they're a talented writer? Well, it was interesting listening to Kelsey because she definitely said that some people are just born with a talent and she could be right. I'm, I think I'm a little more optimistic that, than she is that it can be picked up. I mean, I read a lot of books on writing and I, you know, I was very conscious in reading other writers and trying to see what worked and if I could incorporate it into my writing. So I think I'm a little more optimistic. I'm also hopeful that you can be an effective writer without being a master stylist, like that maybe people will cling to the ideas if they're really strong, even if they're not written in, uh, you know, in, in beautiful flourishes. Do you have any tips on getting honest feedback? The way I do it is I vote for quantity. So when I write a book, I'll send out the manuscript to 20 friends who are nice enough to read it. And I will actually have a little spreadsheet and I'll say to them, 
each of them, please tell me what were your five favorite parts and five least favorite parts. Because I don't trust any single person. Mm. They might have very, a very idiosyncratic view of what's good. But if I get like, you know, 14 of the people saying this was a boring chapter, that's a pretty good indication I should cut it. So I am a big fan of you know, getting my work out there. I also love workshopping my material by giving speeches. So I love giving talks about my projects as they're going on. So my book on puzzles, I'm still in the middle of writing, but I'm going to do an event where I try to talk about puzzles and see, you can see what appeals to people. Mm. I mean, that really is, you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in the way they react. That's what Will's doing with his book. Oh, really? Yeah. So he's writing a book about the long-term future and he's just gone, I mean, this will be in the past when we release this, but he's just gone on a tour across like the top colleges in the UK and the US and he's doing it very quantitatively and getting people to take surveys of, you know, how convinced they were by the ideas and, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And he's using that in his writing process to improve the book in real time. I love that. And I've actually had friends who are writers who use their book tours as research for their next book. So they'll try to get people to engage in conversation and, and what what they find most interesting about the current book and then expand on that in the next book. How valuable is getting pieces published in established outlets? I do think it's very valuable. I mean, I've been very lucky in that I feel I have access two-thirds of the time when I ask someone for an interview, they will say yes. But it's partly because I'm able to drop these, you know, that I'm an editor at Esquire or that I write for the New York Times. And unfortunately, people just latch on to that. They want to see, you know, the, the social proof that you are legitimate. So just in terms of getting access, I think it's important to even just publishing one piece in the New York mm -hmm. Times and say, I've written for the New York Times. It does make a difference. And any tips? Any tips about how people actually yeah, make that well, happen? Yeah, well, I was an editor of the front section of Esquire, so I actually was on the other side. I mean, I have a few tips that I don't know how useful they are. One is find out who is the decision maker. So who is the editor of that particular section? Get their email, find out an article that they are proud of that they wrote or edited, compliment that article in the first couple of sentences. Because, I mean, at least me, I'm a weak man. So anyone who complimented my work, I was like, oh, this guy is, or this woman is pretty smart. I should probably read the rest of this pitch. And then sum up your idea in a, like a punchy paragraph or two. Because the leads of articles and books to me are the most important parts. Because people now, if they're not hooked by the first couple of pages, it's like, see you later. So hook them early and then, you know, attach your, your credits. To your, you know, here's the other people I've written for. Also, unfortunately, whom you know is important. So any connection, if you know, you could say like my barber's third cousin works at Esquire and told me to get in touch with you. I actually will say when I wrote the book on, on family, I did use this tactic all the time. So I would figure out how a reporter or a producer was related to me and say, 
This may sound weird, but you are my fourth cousin three times removed. I had a family favor to ask. And, like, you know, 20% of the time they would be freaked out. But 80% of the time, weirdly, they'd be like, well, that's so crazy. That's so cool. What, what's your idea? And then I would be a little more, have more success. So, and I also worked for interviews. You got an interview with George H.W. Bush, I believe. I did. I used that, that. I used that cheap trick to get, yeah, people that normally would not talk to me. It's fantastic. <laughs> How did you decide you wanted to be a writer? I think it was, uh, again, I wish it were a, a more thoughtful decision, but it was, I graduated college. I had a philosophy degree. There were not a lot of philosophy jobs. I didn't, you know, the, the Center for Effective Altruism did not exist. So uh, the only other thing that I could sort of do was put a sentence together. So I, I started freelance writing, and it was not a great way to make a living, but I eventually got hired to write for a small newspaper and write about, you know, the most mundane, you know, like PTA meetings and a lot of sewage issues. Like that was a big deal. And it was in a small town outside of San Francisco. I, you know, I had no other skills. So luckily I was <laughs> able to, you know, sustain it for long enough that now it's now, now it's working at least for now. Yeah. Who were your writing heroes? I mean, I did love, I don't read as much fiction as I used to, but I did love Mark Twain when I was growing up. He seemed crazy ahead of his time and, you know, an interesting, I loved his, he had a piece on heaven. It was an essay on heaven. And I think it might have, some of his work was delayed and he didn't publish it in his lifetime because he knew it would be too controversial. And this might have been one of them, but it was all about how horrible heaven sounds. Because mm. first of all, you know, that's a lot, he didn't like the sound of the harp. It's not my favorite instrument. Like, <laughs> why do I want to be subjected to that all the time? And, you know, the intellectually, it didn't seem that stimulating. Like, there are no problems to solve. And he talked about sex. Like, he was ahead of his time in terms He's like, you know, I never read about sex in heaven. Like, what's up with that? So uh, I thought he was, you know, he's a, a remarkable thinker. One thing that I really related to was within the know-it-all, you wrote about thinking that you were the smartest boy in the world. Oh, yeah. That's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And I, I loved this. <laughs> one, one, because it's just great to have this sort of candor, and obviously it's embarrassing. But two, I really related to it because I had my own story that's sort of similar to this, but not exactly. So I was wondering if you wanted to tell your version of the story, and then I can tell mine. Yeah, this was quite the delusion, and I don't know where it came from. I think my mom just gave me too many compliments, and I really, until I was like 11, I thought I was possibly the smartest person in the world, and then I was going to say... Smartest save. person, not just smartest boy? Well, that's true. Smart, but had the potential to become. Potential to become, yeah. And that it was sort of, you know, it was actually quite a burden because I was so smart. You know, I had to solve all of the world's problems. And it was a tremendous relief when I realized that I, you know, I do think I'm, I'm on the bell curve, you know, more towards the right, but I am not the smartest person in the world. And that is such a relief. And <laughs> so it has been so much responsibility. Yeah, it was way too much. And, you know, the fact that I thought that I was is partly ironically proof that I'm not because, you know, I, I was basing it on no evidence. And I've gone the other way, you know, I've gone to the importance of epistemic humility. I do think 
I am an outlier in terms of sort of metacognition and being aware of my my faults and my you know cognitive biases. I do think I'm sort of in the 90 percentile on that. But intelligence, I, I no longer think that I'm an extraordinarily brilliant mind. And as I say, I'm, I'm good with that. That's nice. What made you think you were the smartest boy in the world? That's a mystery. Again, I think it's proof that I wasn't, that I, that I believed that. But I think it was, the, you know, there's the Lake Wobegon bias. Uh, so so what, do you want to explain that? Which is Lake, Lake Wobegon is based on a radio show where a town, everyone in this town thought that they were above average or everyone was above average. And you see it in, you know, when you do surveys of drivers, mm-hmm. everyone, everyone thinks they're above average. Thinks they're above average. So I, I think that bias just spun out of control. <laughs> and I really can't explain it, but I'm interested that you had a similar experience. So what about that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I didn't exactly think I was the smartest boy in the world, but I will say that my future wife, Chloe, is never more delighted than when she's making fun of me for talking about myself as a child, because apparently I will crowbar the fact that I happened to skip the fourth grade into basically every <laughs> conversation. So basically my, so my story is that this is, you know, only partially joking that I feel like I kind of intellectually peaked when I was 10 years old. I feel like, you know, I was very bright then. And since then it's like, yeah, you you know, you accumulate more facts, but basically I could do what I'm doing now when I was 10, just give that kid, you know, whatever, whatever I have to do now, like he could have done it. So I do, I do sort of feel like that way. But at the time, at the time I thought it too, I thought, I felt like I was more or less an adult, not just trapped in a 10-year-old's body, but unfortunately, it was trapped in a toddler's body because I, I looked like I was a baby when I was like 10 to 12 years old. I mean, I was looking at photos the other day. I was showing Chloe and and I, I really do look like a baby. Like it's just, it's <laughs> that, that was just the case. But in my head, I was an adult. I had fully formed thoughts. I was thinking about philosophy. I was, I was, had these like fully formed, you know, crushes where I was like thinking like, well, maybe she's the one. I thought that <laughs> at 13, I was thinking she might be the one. She might genuinely be the one. I don't know. And then, you know, to look back and be, be aware that, you know, the other girls like in my class would have been like, oh, I'm not going to date the baby. Like, <laughs> that's not going to happen. But I was kind of trapped in this body. But, you know, now, you know, I find myself in this effective altruism community and you're surrounded by some of the smartest people in the world. And I still have in the back of my mind this perception as a boy of being like, well, I'm kind of the smartest person in the room. <laughs> and my classmates, you know, no one's even close to me there. I know I'm not as smart as these people. And it's, it's humbling to be around all, of, you know, some of, the, some of the brightest minds we have. And, and I just, I felt like it was just, yeah, I, I loved reading that because I knew that as a boy, and even now I look back and think like, oh, yeah, I thought I was the smartest that person in the world. That is so funny. I love that you had that uh, experience. I wonder how many people do. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, I had never, I mean, I'd never really thought about it, but I imagine that's a common experience, especially yeah. if you grew up in a small town. Right. Why did you decide to record yourself for three months? And what was it like basically living an episode of Black Mirror? <laughs> it was. This was a long time before. But I'd say this was about eight years ago. And I, I ran across this movement called Life Logging, where they try to record everything in their lives. So they save, you know, every scrap of paper. And, and most of them, like, have a little thing around their neck that takes pictures every 30 seconds. But... Some of them, the more extreme, record every moment. So I, I bought a little 
lipstick camera and I put it behind my ear and I wore it every moment of the day for about three months and recorded every, you know, everything from most mundane to the most exciting. So I have hundreds of hours of video and it was a fascinating experiment as you say, Black Mirror, and it has got great upsides and terrifying downsides. (laughs) It is. I'm very nervous about the future because I do see this as very likely that this will happen on a big scale, and it's already happening a bit. But, I mean, the upsides, to start with a positive, I loved that I had footage of my kids doing things for the first time and i love being able to you know look at look at that it was actually good for disciplining the kids because you know one of my kids i was playing chess with him he must have been like six years old and he totally cheated he knew he cheated (laughs) and i said you just cheated and he said no i didn't i was like dude i have it on video like we can (laughs) rewind and i rewound it and it's like you just you know you moved that twice he's like all right so it does have a positive discipline i mean it it might very well cut down on crime you know i don't i wasn't mugged but if i were then i would have that so those are some of the positives some of the negatives are it's not great for the marriage for one thing because i my idea was If we had a disagreement, a lot of our disagreements are, no, you told me that, I didn't say that, and I actually did do that once, and we replayed the part, and I was videotaping us while we were replaying a fight, and that just caused a bigger fight, and it was really disastrous, like not even in a joking, this is for the article way. It was like (laughs) really unpleasant. So that's, you know, and, and of course, a lot of people were totally offended, like, why are you videotaping me? You know, this is outrageous because, you know, I do think privacy is something that I can't tell whether it's it's like inherent to humans or whether. But I do think the world would not be great if every moment of our lives was videotaped. So, again, I think it's like radical honesty. There are some good parts. I, I might encourage us to do some life logging, but not full on life logging. Well, as expected, this was an absolute delight. We had to spend the day with you. I'm so thankful that you'd come on the 80,000 Hours podcast. Thank you so much, AJ. Are you kidding? It was my pleasure. I'm a big fan, as I say, and the good of this conversation far outweighed the bad, at least for me. If you enjoyed that episode, you might also like to check out episode 126, Brian Kaplan on whether lazy parenting is okay, what really helps workers, and betting on beliefs. Episode 92, Brian Christian on the alignment problem. Perhaps a recent episode, 142, John McCorder on key lessons from linguistics, the virtue of creoles and language extinction. Or maybe episode 99, Leah Garces on turning adversaries into allies to change the chicken industry. That's it for this year's classic episode series. We'll be back with an original interview before too long. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and indeed in this case hosted by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering for this episode was by Ben Cordell, while the transcript for this episode was produced by Zachy Ulhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. 